0: And gentlemen welcome to the voice of neuro another episode here with agent smith it is sunday or monday depending on which time zone you're in 10:22 p.m pacific and we're here to talk about the world current events foreign policy economics world history the sky is the limit good to have you again agent smith how is it going okay it's okay <laughs> Not superb, not terrible. I appreciate the honesty.
1: I can't complain.
0: Yeah, Well, if you ever need help, we have a whole nice community here who can brainstorm some ideas of stuff to complain about. (laughs) I have no doubt. So what's been going on in the world for us uh, sheltered internet folk who only browse memes and don't really get the substance of what's happening? I was at TwitchCon last weekend, so there was a lot of buzzing about those community figures and so on, in that ecosystem but mm. outside of that i've heard of some whistleblowing humor in the united states government mm-hmm. you know anything about that
1: yeah a little bit that's that's probably been the big story here in the united states for the past uh, week and change mm-hmm. um let me see if i can remember this correctly now there was a whistleblower who submitted a a complaint to the. Uh, well, let me see if I can find the right office here. The office of something or other. Office of the National Security Inspector. Should probably organize my notes at some point. Well. Whatever it was, there was a complaint submitted over a phone call between Donald Trump and President Zelensky of Ukraine. And uh, the complaint asserted that there was an attempt uh, to pressure the Ukrainian government into investigating uh, Joe Biden's son, uh, who was, and maybe still is, sitting on the board of a gas company, that is to say a natural gas company, Uh, in the Ukraine called Burisma and so uh, that was the crux of it basically that the allegation was that Donald Trump tried to uh, exchange military aid uh, for that investigation the United States has been giving foreign aid uh, to the Ukraine for the past uh, what five years now thereabouts more or less since uh, the Maidan revolts and the subsequent conflict, and uh, supposedly the Trump administration withheld, uh, well, was threatening to withhold uh, that aid uh, if the Ukrainian government did not launch uh, the investigation in question. So that's the allegation anyway, whether or not that's true or an accurate representation is sort of the crux of the debate at this point. Uh, Let me check my notes here again.
0: I did have the chance to meet with a Ukrainian Starcraft legend, White Raw oh, cool. at TwitchCon. He works for Twitch now, over there, and he was just playing that like bean sack toss thing where you throw it onto the board and hacky sack. Yeah, it has many names. Some of them are sillier than others. <laughs> but he was playing that and in his very nice voice and hospital nature he was saying if you ever come to ukraine you are welcome every room you can stay in it's more safe now than before (laughs) so apparently there is some progress there in terms of the conflict and the danger to citizens and whatnot
1: it depends on where you live yeah you know if you're living in donetsk or lugansk then more of a problem um but the rest of ukraine yeah i don't think they have as much um if any, fighting, really. Feel free to correct me on that if I'm wrong, chat, but uh, that's my impression anyway. I think the overall political atmosphere has calmed down a bit. Still can be pretty exciting. There was that... uh, What was her name? There was some war hero. A woman who was, I think, a pilot of some kind, and she was captured by the Russians and held and... And they ended up exchanging her some time later for other prisoners uh, that the Ukrainian government had caught from the rebels and I think her name was Nadia. her first name was Nadia, something but anyway she ended up in Ukraine's parliament. she ran as a poli- she became a politician and got into parliament and uh, as a nationalist unsurprisingly and so then she got in trouble more recently in the past year or two because she was accused of plotting to overthrow the government. And uh, there was a bunch of recordings of her, you know, talking with some people about it and whatnot. So some people said that it was a setup that they just wanted, uh, you know, just wanted to get rid of her, because she was making trouble in the government for uh, Poroshenko, then-president Poroshenko and his people. Uh, She wanted the government to take a harder line on uh, the rebels and Russia, and the Poroshenko government kind of didn't want to do that. Uh, but then other people obviously say that, you no, know, it was she was just trying to overthrow the government, you know, for whatever her reasons may have been. And that uh, you can't do that, <laughs> to put it mildly. So sometimes stuff like that pops up, but for the most part, you know, all the violence from, like, the Maidan period, that doesn't seem to be uh, quite as prominent now. I do love tangents, don't I? Um, Don't you know
0: it's against the rules to overthrow the government?
1: Jeez. I mean, well, before we got into that, um, yeah, the scandal, the um, quote-unquote scandal. Yeah, so right now, uh, well, what happened was the House was threatening that they would um, launch an impeachment inquiry, which is basically an inquiry where they inquire whether or not they want to actually impeach somebody. And uh, they didn't do it at first, but then later on the transcript was released. Uh, the House had, well, the House of Representatives had asked for uh, the transcript of the conversation in question so that they could judge the veracity of the complaint that was made. And uh, the Trump administration kind of waffled on that a little bit and then eventually gave a transcript. And it seemed to pretty much, to a degree, verify what Complaint. The complaint had said that there was a quid pro quo requested, but uh, the language used in the conversation, at least as described in the transcript, uh, was not explicit. It left room for doubt, basically. Uh, what's the word I want? Or the phrase I want? Plausible deniability. That's what I wanted. Obviously that's debatable to a point. Some people would argue that it's pretty obvious that they were trying to pressure the ukrainian government to investigate in exchange for something Uh, from what i read the military aid in question was temporarily suspended in july i think the conversation in question actually took place months ago it's not a recent thing it was uh around july and that was around when i think that they suspended the aid Again, the reasons why are subject to debate. The administration says that they wanted to withhold the aid so that they could make sure the Ukrainian government was going to implement uh, the anti-corruption measures that the aid was supposed to be predicated on. Uh, But then the critics are saying that no, that was just part of the quid pro quo, and that they were sending the signal uh, that the aid would not be sent until the US government was satisfied. that the ukrainian government was meeting certain unnamed objectives or goals obviously the anti-corruption measures would be above, among them but it may be that the trump administration had a rather different sort of anti-corruption measure in mind that being investigating uh, a potential political rival that's not that unusual in a lot of countries anti-corruption measures are uh, especially in corrupt countries With corrupt political systems, anti corruption measures are often used as political bludgeons against political opponents. Uh, So it's been done before in other places. Uh, It hasn't happened in the US so much, but it's feasible. So that said, let's see, I'm trying to. (laughs) I don't really have any particular organized way of talking about it. I'm just. We're kind of in the early stages of the story, so there's just information to kind of take in and people can kind of judge for themselves what they make of make of it.
0: Yeah. Well, it's pretty difficult. I think in general to tell the difference between an accusation and something tangible that's going on, especially when you're dealing with a political opponent Hmm. and the flip side is political opponents are also the most likely to call out someone who is genuinely corrupt because oftentimes the people on the same team are going to try to keep them doing what they're doing. Uh, so that like they continue to benefit from that corruption in some way Mm -hmm. so there's a bit of a difference here i guess from some other countries like you said that are more commonly dealing with corruption as an issue
1: well in places like romania or you know the ukraine uh, anti-corruption agencies have been used in that way in various ways and it's not just that there's lots of countries where that's happened but Uh, In in this case, whether you think that fits here in the case of the U.S., uh, it depends on what you think of Joe Biden, because the crux of it is that way back in 2014, during the Obama administration, maybe it was 2015, during the Obama administration, uh, when the Ukrainian government was asking for military aid at the start of the conflict in Ukraine, after the rebels had uh, started fighting the government in eastern Ukraine, Uh, The U.S. government did not want to give that aid without preconditions uh, with regard to corruption. They wanted to make sure that the money, if it was given to the Ukraine, would not be stolen or uh, embezzled or otherwise uh, misused. And so it was demanded that measures be taken, certain reforms implemented, etc. And one of the problems uh, that the United States had at the time was that... uh, There was a prosecutor in the Ukraine that was supposed to investigate Burisma, the natural gas firm I mentioned, and he was kind of dragging his feet. And, uh, you know, another common facet of corrupt political systems is that prosecutors will only prosecute, will actually try to prosecute if there's not really any political threat to them. Uh, That is to say that if the person that they're uh, investigating has political connections, they'll generally Uh, back off or you know won't really fully investigate so there was a lot of criticism of this guy his name was Shokin this prosecutor and so the United States government along with uh, Europe as well which was also being uh, asked for aid on the part of Kiev uh, they all asked for this prosecutor to be kicked out basically to be removed or reassigned as one of the preconditions uh, to receive the military aid which was done Um, the trouble with that is that it is that Burisma had at that point placed Joe Biden's son on its board of directors. Um, I forget his name, Hunter Biden. I think his name is. And so Joe Biden allegedly uh, bragged that he had gotten that prosecutor removed and that it it was a uh, example of corruption that uh, he had his son placed on the board of directors as a quid pro quo in exchange for, access to the Obama administration and, uh, if not also, the military aid in question. So that's the allegation made against Joe Biden. And the uh, Trump administration more recently has been arguing that that phone call was intended to push the Ukrainian government to investigate that, for one, uh, that particular incidence, but also to explore uh, any connections between Ukrainian political actors and uh, alleged interference in the U.S. 2016 election. Uh, supposedly, certain actors within Ukraine uh, helped produce the... Uh, I forget the name of it, but it was that report that was drawn up uh, and used to used as evidence that Trump was compromised and working with the Russians, um, among other things. And so uh, the Trump administration wanted them to look into that as well, uh, allegedly they argue to prevent a, for a reoccurrence of that election interference, as they call it. <clears throat> so that's their defense at this point. They're saying that they were legitimately looking into corruption by an American official, Joe Biden, in this case, and uh, that the call was totally innocent. So Let's see... So what happened with the House, um, they didn't start the impeachment inquiry right away, but once the transcript was released, they, uh, they actually did start it. They did vote to start it. And uh, that was because the transcript, transcript seemed to verify uh, the basis, at least uh, basically what the, what the complaint had alleged, which is that uh, Trump seemed to be, at, at the very least, asking the leader of a foreign government to investigate a political rival. So even if it is a legitimate request to investigate corruption, uh, the problem is that Joe Biden is, at this point, I think, leading in the polls. So he seems like he could well be the DNC nominee. It's still early days, too early, soon to, too soon to really tell. But uh, the fact that he is uh, leading the field there, one of the major leaders of the Democratic race for presidential nominee, that casts some suspicion there. And it, it seems that the Trump administration may be trying to uh, discredit a potential rival. So that's, that's the criticism. That's the other side of the criticism. Uh, let's see. He's
0: corrupt. You just don't like him.
1: <laughs> uh, let's see. So some more information that came out more recently was that a guy named Kurt Volker, who is a volunteer in the Trump administration, apparently, he apparently doesn't have an official position, Uh, but he was a volunteer to mediate the Ukraine-Russia issue on behalf of the U.S. government. Uh, So Kurt Volker and a guy named Gordon Sondland, who is apparently the U.S. ambassador to the EU, uh, both of them met with President Zelensky to discuss how he should quote-unquote navigate uh, Trump's request. Uh, So that came out as part of the uh, House impeachment inquiry, which requested uh, records of text messages and uh, other transcripts. And so that came out as part of those investigations. Uh, also, they've been digging up some evidence that the Trump administration has been pushing other governments to launch investigations into Joe Biden. Uh, Attorney General William Barr apparently held some private meetings with Italian and British intelligence officials to ask for their help uh, with his probe into the Mueller inquiry. Okay, so that's not Joe Biden in that case. but. Uh, looking into the Mueller Inquiry and uh, where that came from. And so uh, that's again, that ties into the Trump administration's interest in trying to look into uh, who may have interfered quote-unquote in the 2016 election by perhaps trying to discredit Donald Trump uh, in order to assist the uh, Hillary campaign, Hillary Clinton campaign, campaign rather. Uh, also, supposedly, allegedly, Donald Trump asked Australian officials to assist with the ongoing investigation into the origin of the Mueller inquiry. Uh, so that's some other news that came out. So there's also some subpoenas. Oh, I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, subpenas. Subpoenas. okay. Thank you. Uh, shifting. So the administration is, there's some subpoenas out uh, for further information, and the administration is uh, stonewalling on that also dragging its feet. Um, Pompeo has accused congressional the Congressional Investigative Committee of quote-unquote bullying uh, for I- issuing excessive subpoena. Is it really subpoena? Yeah, subpoena. Oh, man.
0: Yeah, it's spelled subpoena. That's the correct spelling. <clears throat> it's one of those tricky words. Thanks, English language. The English and French, they just have so many letters that you don't pronounce. I yeah. think French definitely worse than english but they both share that common thing it's one of the nice things about a language like spanish you just read it like as it is
1: and every so often you find out you've been pronouncing a word wrong forever
0: yep (laughs) it happens
1: that's what i get for not talking to people more
0: (laughs) i mean it's an active process by being here you're practicing your skills I reckon so. You have quite the intellect as well, so I think it makes it a little bit less intimidating if there's something that you don't do perfectly. I do a lot of things
1: imperfectly.
0: (laughs) Right, but if you're an expert, then a lot of times people won't notice those. And you can just play it cool like you meant to do that.
1: I don't know, man. With people being, uh, with the political environment the way it is, I think... uh, People critical of whatever way I describe something may look for reasons. That's generally the way it works on the internet. So let's see. Talking about the subpoenas, the administration is complaining about issuing too many, issuing excessive subpoenas. Actually, is a kind of political tactic to harass an administration. That's kind of been done before. Uh, so that's not necessarily an that assertion that it's excessive is not has some credibility. It has some precedent, let's put it like that. So that's not entirely unreasonable or untrue. Uh, Also, the president's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, still can't believe he's his personal lawyer. Rudy Giuliani was subpoenaed for documents as well, so we'll see what comes of that. Rudy Giuliani apparently is involved. He was sort of the intermediary for the president and uh, certain advisors to the Ukrainian government, apparently among others, so they're going to look into him and see what role he may have played. Uh, let's see, so one of the other criticisms, after the fact, after this whole kerfuffle started up, um, Donald Trump went on Twitter, as he is wont to do, and started issuing rather vague veiled, veiled? Threats. veiled. veiled. <laughs> veiled threats against uh, the whistleblower, saying uh, things like he was a spy, and how we used to deal with spies, quote unquote, when we were smarter. Nah. So, some of that was interpreted to be a threat and an attempt to intimidate a whistleblower. So, that, of course, also depends what, in the eye of the beholder, you know, depending on how you want to interpret that. Uh, but that was further criticism of the way the administration was handling the issue. Uh, let's see, there are allegations that the whistleblower, oh, so the form that the whistleblower filled out in order to, uh, submit the complaint as part of the formal process. Oh, here it is. That's the Office of the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community. It's the office I was trying to find earlier. Uh, so the complaint form allegedly was changed just before to change a key aspect. Of the previously, the form had asserted that if you were going to file a complaint, then it had to be firsthand information. Uh, but supposedly, the complainant if that's the right word, uh, in his letter where he detailed the issue in question, asserted that only most of what he was ascertaining, uh, well, most of what he was um, expressing was from firsthand, but not all of it. Uh, but the form was changed to remove that requirement. So there are some people questioning why that form was changed and whether there was, isn't some sort of broader uh, implication there. Uh, the office of the Inspector General of the intelligence community has come out and said that it was already under review. That is to say, the form was already under review for a potential change, and they changed it after the complaint was made, but not before, so they say. Uh, so people have been talking about that, and then the oh today, I think today or yesterday, some of the one of the news stories is that there's a second whistleblower. Who's saying that he'll come forward. Uh, he says that he has uh, direct, what what's the phrase I want, first-hand information. He didn't get the information second-hand but first-hand, and so that would uh, ostensibly deal with that problem with the information for the first whistleblower not being first-hand. Uh, but as far as I know that complaint hasn't officially been made yet, that's just something that was announced. Uh, The complainant in the letter, you can tell I don't have a legal background, (laughs) Um, the complainant in his letter uh, stated that he had heard from another official in the Trump administration about the contents of the phone call with Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. And so that was the the crux of their their complaint. So in that sense it wasn't firsthand. Uh, Let's see. And one of the other things that people have been arguing about on this, uh, some of the critics of the impeachment process have been saying that the impeachment inquiry vote was unconstitutional or illegal because the full House did not vote on it. Uh, Supposedly the Constitution requires a full House vote for impeachment. Uh, In point of fact, the Constitution apparently does not stipulate uh, what kind of vote is needed to start impeachment. Uh, the only thing the Constitution really says is that you need a majority of House members uh, to have a final vote to impeach. Uh, but as for how you get the impeachment started, that apparently is left ambiguous constitutionally. So it's not really true then that the uh, impeachment inquiry is illegal, as far as I know. Again, no legal background, to so make of that what you will. Uh, so. Again, this is a lot of just information I'm shotgunning out there, and I'm still kind of reading all of it. There's lots of new information coming out all the time, and so there's I've got a backlog, suffice to say. But uh, the main takeaway right now, one, at the very least, Donald Trump broke a norm, that is to say a political norm, which is that, one, you're not supposed to ask foreign governments to attack political rivals, if that is indeed what happened um but even if it was uh well and if you do do that which you shouldn't but if you do don't do it yourself you're supposed to use intermediaries that's sort of what nixon and other presidents who have been suspected of being guilty of this did in the past uh you're not supposed to make it some kind of official request in your capacity as president while carrying out american foreign policy uh the norm is that you don't do it and that if you do do it Uh, use intermediaries so that it's clear that you're not doing it in your uh, as president, basically. And then if you do do that, if you don't use intermediaries, at the very least, don't get caught. So those are sort of the three layers there to that norm, and the Trump administration has just not really adhered to those. So the question then is, does that warrant impeachment? That's kind of subjective, Um, As far as whether or not laws were broken, it is illegal to ask a foreign government to attack a political rival for your own political gain, but it is legal to ask a foreign leader to investigate corruption. So that's sort of where the debate therein lies. Uh, I think part of the impeachment investigation, if it comes to that, is going to come down to establishing intent. Did Donald Trump intend for there to be an implicit message sent in his phone call that there was a quid pro quo in place, uh, or even if there wasn't a quid pro quo, quid pro quo rather being offered, if there was at least an attempt to get a foreign government to interfere in the twenty-six in the twenty twenty election. Uh, if there's no intent, then it's not illegal. If there is, then it is. Uh, but of course, establishing intent uh, is difficult in the best of circumstances. So, that's probably not going to be uh, what breaks his back, so to speak, if it comes down to an impeachment vote. I don't think a debate about intent is going to be sufficiently compelling to bring over skeptical GOP senators. So, I'm skeptical that he'll be impeached, basically. Maybe there'll be an impeachment trial, but I don't think that they're going to have the votes.
0: Hmm. I don't know. This is kind of a simple question. <clears throat> if you're impeached, you cannot run for president in the future. Is that the case?
1: I don't think that's the case, and I'm not aware of any rule to that effect.
0: You just get impeached, like, right before, and then you just run again.
1: <laughs> that actually could well happen. And, you know, given how unpopular impeachment is polling with a lot of people, it's feasible that uh, it may actually give them a bump in the polls. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Well, the 21st century is quite the ride, so we'll see what happens.
0: In the Twitch scene, there is a similar effect of broadcasters who will break the terms of service, and it ends up giving a really big boost to their channel's popularity. That's actually very common. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, if it's a temporary ban and not a permanent ban, they have different durations. There's a 24-hour, three-day, week, and month, and oftentimes they'll do something ridiculous like some stunt that's against tos to make a statement or do whatever and they get banned and then everyone's all in an uproar and your name is like all over the the fail subreddit and the twitch subreddit and it's on twitter and everything and then you come back and you're bigger than you were before (laughs) so kind of sounds like a a government equivalent but like you were saying that's something that would be has no precedent no one has tried to do that right
1: impeach someone
0: no run after you've been impeached
1: oh no nobody's ever been formally impeached before so never nobody has had the opportunity we'll see what comes of it even if he is impeached and can't run again that's uh, it's not like he's just gonna leave politics <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm sure he'll be twittering away even more if he were impeached so
0: I have not yet begun to tweet.
1: Yeah. yeah, You know, Trump may leave, but his sort of politics, it probably isn't going to go away for a while. That's probably going to be a part of the uh, discourse for some time, <clears throat> one way or the other. Yeah, the Democrats are kind of in a tough spot, because um, on the one hand, the left wing of the party wants to impeach him, suffice to say. <laughs> it's putting it mildly. Uh, but then the center and right of the party are a little more skeptical. Um, there's a lot of people in rural areas and relatively conservative areas that have Democratic representatives or senators that uh, are not so gung-ho on the idea. And the Democrats then, the Democratic leadership then has faces the dilemma of either um, alienating the left wing of the party by not pursuing impeachment or alienating the other part of the party by pursuing it. It's... Um, that's a tough call, and it kind of reflects the debate about democratic strategy in the 2020 election. You know, do you try to motivate the base, kind of move to the left and uh, emphasize leftist ideals to try to fire up people and get them to uh, turn out? Or do you try to appeal to the center to win more votes, to try to encompass not only the left-wing uh, voters, but also people who are more center-left? And maybe try to get some center-right people who are disgruntled with uh, Donald Trump's administration.
0: Didn't that kind of fail, though, with Clinton? Because Clinton was seen as the compromising candidate who was more center than Bernie Sanders, who was trying to appeal to the left.
1: Yeah, that is the argument that's kind of made on the part of the people who want them to move to the left. But then uh, the counter-argument is that in the midterm elections two years after Trump won, uh, the left-wing candidates didn't do as well as the centrist candidates. Uh, So that's kind of the data point there and there's also the fact that uh Donald Trump won some traditionally democratic voting states uh, partly because people who had been more center kind of shifted over to him and so there's a sense that maybe if they can try to win those votes back then they could uh, perform better you know get some of those states they lost back in 2020 but it's an ongoing debate and I don't know all there is to know about it for sure I'm sure somebody in chat is <laughs> revealing that uh, information, please do contribute in chat. I don't, the usual disclaimer is that I don't know everything. <laughs> what is the usual disclaimer? Um, I'm not an expert in everything I talk about, obviously. Uh, so if I say anything wrong, stupid, or biased, please do point it out. Participation in chat is encouraged. I learned from chat. Uh, I don't read chat while we do this, but I will read it afterwards. <clears throat> so, uh, I, I like I like to kind of learn new things from chat because they generally, people, obviously you kind of have a crowdsourcing effect where you have a lot of different people coming in and they all have different backgrounds, different information. So I generally learn something going through and uh, reading chat after the fact. I would read it during, but I can't walk and chew bubblegum at the same time, let alone talk about this stuff and read you know questions and feedback and whatnot. What was I talking about? Well,
0: the <clears throat> whistleblowing, oh, the right. potential impeachment ideas, whether impeachment would help oh, or hurt um,
1: Yeah, democratic strategy. Yeah, they're they're trying to figure that out. It, so yeah, the the problem with impeachment reflects that um, debate over where to go. You know, so if they impeach Trump, then it kind of alienates some people, and just just like moving to the left to try to turn out the vote might alienate some people. So that's an ongoing debate, and um, we'll see where it goes. I think momentum right now is kind of more with the centrists, but we'll see what happens. You know, it's again, it's still early going as far as the uh, 2020 presidential election cycle, which is ridiculously long. That's a pretty modern thing. It didn't used to be that people ran for president for like a year and a half before the actual election. That's some crazy bullshit from the past 20 years. I think part of the problem is Iowa and um, New Hampshire, and uh, what was it? So Iowa and New Hampshire, for those who are not initiated with US political nonsense, Iowa and New Hampshire are the first states to hold presidential primaries. If you don't know what a presidential primary is, that's a uh, election held by a political party. Uh, To see who supports which presidential nominee. That's sort of the rough cut description. And uh, basically every state will, pretty much every state, will run a primary before a presidential election. Now the thing about Iowa and New Hampshire is that they're considered sort of bellwether states. They're considered the states that have voters who are the most roughly representative of the broader population. They're kind of seen as centrist, middle-of-the-road, moderate voters. So anybody who can win with them can probably do pretty well with the broader electorate. So the thinking goes, I think, if you're a poli sci person and I'm getting this completely wrong, please correct me. But this is what I'm what what I'm remembering in my sleep deprived brain. So Iowa, New Hampshire, they're the first. Uh, they're moderate. They're considered bellwether. Blah blah blah. So what happened is that other states wanted to be the bellwether. And so they moved their... they rescheduled their primaries to be before Iowa, New Hampshire. Uh, Because besides being well bellwether states and whatnot, um, the Iowa and New Hampshire primaries were scheduled first before all the others too. So Iowa, New Hampshire didn't want to lose that distinction, so they had to reschedule their primaries to get ahead of the other states. And then that led to basically a primary scheduling arms race where tit-for-tat, different states would reschedule theirs earlier and earlier. And I think uh, they finally stopped it when Florida tried it. The Florida, I think it was Democrats, maybe? I think it was the Florida Democrats who decided to move their primaries up uh, way before New Hampshire and Iowa at some point. And uh, finally the Democratic Party just said, okay, no, you can't do that. If you do that, then we're going to bar your representatives from voting uh, in the Democratic presidential convention. And I think uh, 2010 maybe? 2012? I don't remember exactly when this was. Uh, But finally the Florida Democrats did reschedule that, so that kind of put a stop to the arms race. So people stopped rescheduling it. But the result, the new equilibrium, is that New Hampshire and Iowa hold their primaries like a year and a half ahead of the election. Which again is stupid. (laughs) but they wanted to be first. And so that's what we've got. It sounds like the Santa
0: effect where it's like Christmas shopping starts around the same time as Halloween. When it's that far away, they're just trying to get that edge, get the stuff out earlier.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's the trouble with it. Yeah, it would be really smart if they could change that. If they could move it so it's maybe just a few months before the election, but that would require a lot of coordination. You know, different states want to be more important politically in the process, and having your primary earlier on is a way to do that. So mm-hmm. messing around with uh, the scheduling could just re-trigger the arms race, and then you're kind of back where you started.
0: <clears throat> I'm getting a a line from the movie Elf. Right as they finish all of the different toys and things that are going to be shipped out around the world. They say, yay, good job, everyone. And now it's time to start preparing for next
1: Christmas.
0: (laughs) You finish an election cycle and you just dive right back in. All right, let's go. Next campaign.
1: It kind of feels like it it, Mm because there really should be more focus on governing rather than campaigning. But because the election cycle is so long, you really don't get much time.
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: so that's something to watch well I mean the uh, Ukraine Trump thing that's something to watch you can also watch the primary scheduling if you want but it's going to be like watching paint dry I imagine so maybe don't do that well is there anything else that caught your eye Nero
0: Mm, I don't think so I mean, there's the drama with what, Hong Kong. Yeah. That's kind of an ongoing story, isn't it?
1: It is. I think the last time we talked about it, um, I think I told you that uh, they withdrew the bill, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they withdrew the bill, and that was, they were hoping, basically, that that would be sort of uh, de-escalate the protests, and that actually has not happened. The protests have uh, continued and have actually escalated. Um, Partly that's the fault of the police, but I'll get into that in a minute. But uh, Carrie Lam, the chief executive, whatever she is, of Hong Kong, uh, she got the go-ahead from Beijing, it would seem, to withdraw the bill, so... uh, They were probably hoping that that would de-escalate the protest and then things could kind of get back to normal but the protesters for their part are demanding not only that the extradition bill be withdrawn but also that the other four of their five major demands be met a lot of that has to do with stuff that actually happened after the protests start things like amnesty for arrested protesters uh, an inquiry into the police uh, stuff like that but also i think uh, One of the five demands was, let me see if I remember, oh, electoral reform. They wanted uh, Hong Kong's government, its political system, to be reformed so that there was universal suffrage, so that the the head of the executive branch is directly elected by the public, uh, as well as, I don't know for sure, but I think they were also asking for legislative branch reforms. The LegCo is sort of a weird institution. I think We might have talked about that a little bit before. So basically the protesters have said that it's not enough just to withdraw the uh, bill, they're also demanding democratic reforms. Which means the protests have effectively evolved then from just being a reaction to the withdrawal bill to being uh, a genuine reform movement that is demanding broader changes to Hong Kong's political system. Which may not be a good thing, uh, because Before, when it was about the withdrawal bill, they had some powerful allies, um, that being the business community in Hong Kong. The business community in Hong Kong was not super gung-ho about the extradition bill either. Uh, The thing that makes Hong Kong distinctive from China, uh, well, besides the political institutions, is the fact that it has a pretty free and open economy with pretty strong uh, institutions, that is to say, an independent judiciary. Uh, rule of law, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, the business community was afraid that if the extradition bill was passed, uh, then those institutions would be under threat and that the market would lose confidence in Hong Kong's independence and the independence of its institutions. So the business community was actually largely against it, along with the broader uh, protest movement. Which meant that there was pressure coming from not only the people, so to speak, but also some powerful institutional actors. But now that the withdrawal bill has been sorry <laughs> now that the extradition bill has been withdrawn, uh, the business community is ready for things to kind of quiet down, get back to normal, so that they can get back to doing what they do, you know business, which has been hurt, rather substantively by the protests. They were willing to give that a pass, so long as the extradition bill was still on the table, but now that it's gone, uh, they're probably going to start throwing their weight behind Carrie Lam and the Hong Kong government again. Um, I would guess. That's speculation on my part, but there's some signs that that's the case, and if that is the case, then, then Hong Kong's government may have the room and legitimacy to start cracking down on the protests more. Not cracking down like Tiananmen Square style, mind you, but uh, the Hong Kong police could be allowed to be more aggressive in rounding people up and whatnot. And there has been uh, some uptick in the aggressiveness of the Hong Kong police. I think there was two protesters who were shot um, with live ammo, mind you, not, uh, not non-lethal rounds, but they were shot with uh, actual live rounds. Uh, in one of those cases, though, it wasn't like shooting into a crowd. It was uh, Well, neither of the cases were like that. But it, in one of the cases, it was... Uh, alleged self-defense. Supposedly a protester was using some kind of pipe or metal implement or something to uh, attack some people or some police, and so one police officer drew his weapon and shot him. That's a pretty clear escalation, whether it was justified or not, so the protesters don't much appreciate that, so that's probably just gonna make things worse. But uh, going forward, it could be that the police are going to start pushing harder, and that uh, if the protesters don't start backing down and uh, kind of ameliorating their position a little bit, well, I shouldn't say ameliorating, um, moderating, shall we say, their position somewhat, then it could be uh, it could turn into a real clash. Hong Kong, the Hong Kong government has been dealing with it with relatively uh, dealing with the protests relatively softly up to this point. Uh, they could do a whole lot more if they wanted to really make it rough for the protesters. And up till now, the Hong Kong government, I don't think, really thought that it had the political support to do that. But now that the extradition bill is out, uh, they might, they might well have that. So I, that's that's basically just a long-winded way of saying, I think things will get worse.
0: Yeah. So- well, <clears throat> did they start with these five things, or you're saying it sounds like they have? Shifted as they've snowballed their momentum somewhat, where maybe they started with one objective, but then they see there's a systemic issue, so now they have the list of
1: things they want changed instead of just one thing. Yeah, that's what it was. They started just focusing on the withdrawal bill, and then the police kind of roughed them up uh, over the course of the protest, so then they demanded an inquiry into the police. Um, more and more protesters got arrested, so they demanded the amnesty for protesters who'd have been arrested for quote-unquote rioting, as the police called it. Um, so let me see, that's three things. There's the fourth one too, but it's slipping my mind. And uh, basically it was only after the protests had picked up a lot of momentum and people were uh, really coming out into the streets in mass that they added the fifth one, which was uh, electoral reform. So they tied that into an overarching problem that didn't necessarily have directly to do with the withdrawal bill. Uh, which is that a lot of people in Hong Kong are wary about China's—that is to say, Beijing's intentions for Hong Kong over the long term. There's a fear that the the withdrawal bill and other such bills, like the education bill and the uh, universal suffrage reform from a few years ago, are all symptoms or all signs rather uh, that Beijing is actually interested in subjugating Hong Kong and destroying its independent institutions. Uh, so for them, then, this isn't just about this particular bill and this particular attempt by Beijing to change Hong Kong's system. It's more about the the principle of the thing, the idea that China would change their system and what China is going to do in 2047 or so uh, when that 50-year guarantee to maintain Hong Kong's distinctive institutions finally runs out. So the protests evolved in that direction and have become uh, broader. Basically, they have encompassed broader goals, as you described, Mm. over time. In that sense, it would have been smarter for the government to have tried to defuse it earlier before it uh, evolved in that direction. Now it's going to be even harder if the protesters do in fact have enough public support uh, to continue the mass protests. If they don't, then the Hong Kong government may find that it's even easier to crack down and kind of marginalize the protests. So part of the battle then is the battle for public perception. You know, are the protesters right that this is the time to stand up to Hong Kong and the Hong Kong government, rather, and Beijing and try to make their point that they don't want their system to change? Uh, Or is it a bridge too far? Are they alienating the public and uh, are they just asking for trouble, basically a crackdown that's going to see them significantly rolled back? It's not really clear at this point. But I'm not. What well, really also optimistic.
0: fits with just the general uh, mechanics of having a successful protest is also understanding what you really want changed, what you can get changed, and what's too much. Mm-hmm. Too much, like, as you're saying, so that they lose momentum at a point. Because they have an ally right now, like you said, with the business community. But if they ask for too much, then that starts to bump into what they're willing to. Like agree on, <clears throat>
1: yeah.
0: and then if they don't have enough momentum in any direction, then they're not making any progress, and then they cease being successful.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, that's basically a, that's it in a nutshell. I mean, uh, their big allies, the business community, have been willing to kind of throw some weight behind them, uh, but they are losing money by having the protests, and uh, now that they've gotten rid of the withdrawal bill, which was their main objective. They're not really interested in the protests continuing. So then there's a clash uh, sort of evolving between the Hong Kong government and the business community on one side and uh, the protest movement on the other. And who wins that is difficult to say. Hong Kong's never really been in a position like this before. It's going to be an interesting case study. You know, Chinese are not really known for being overly political but part of that is just because they have a closed political system. So what does China and Chinese culture look like in a uh, modern democratic political system where people are highly educated and highly skilled and have the resources to uh, plan and propagate a major protest movement? Uh, We're going to find out. We're going to see just how good they are at playing the game, so to speak. Probably not great, since this is their first time and probably not great because Hong Kong's government is not fully democratic. You know, the uh, governor is de facto appointed by Beijing, and the legislature is not fully democratic either, so Hong Kong's institutions are not entirely going to be on the side of the broader public. If indeed the broader public is even on the side of the protesters, there's also the fact that there's a fair number of people, I don't think a majority, but there's a fair number of people in Hong Kong who do support the Chinese government. You know, in particular people who are more recent migrants. Uh, there's also people who just don't really care. <laughs> and that's always a pretty sizable block in any political debate.
0: Yep, the apathetic in the center. They're like, why is everyone so upset? <laughs> I do have to give the protesters a tip of the hat with the list of things they want changed. That was one of the things that frustrated me with the occupy movement and showing up there was (laughs) there was nothing like clearly hammered out as we want these tangible changes it was like everyone who had that energy of in the u.s like they saw that as an opportunity to shout about something so you had the fluoride in the water people the (laughs) the banks are hecking us over people and the wall street people are at fault the Government is at fault. Like everyone who had their own individual issue was there, but it wasn't spearheaded properly in a way that had an actionable plan. Mm. The issue here is, is the plan too ambitious? Yeah. What could feasibly change?
1: Yeah, for sure the Hong Kong protest movement has been very well organized and coordinated. You know, I wouldn't take that away from them. The problem is just more the political calculus. Mm. You know, they're, the way that they've... Uh, The way that they've approached antagonizing the police, the way that they've uh, impacted mass transit and the daily lives of the broader public, and the way that they've managed their sort of implicit de facto alliance with the business community, all of those things have not necessarily been managed well. But the tactical side of it, uh, as far as managing what they're protesting for, uh, staying on message, and again, coordinating on the ground, in fact, the coordination on the ground is very impressive. Um, you know, they're at the point where they've decentralized leadership so that you can't arrest any one or group of people in uh, the protest movement to kind of shut down the protests. And they've been using a lot of encrypted uh, messaging services of whatever kind they can find to try to pass around information about, uh, well, I guess you could call them flash protests. They'll show up at a site and uh, you know blockade the road or do whatever. Set up you know start protesting, and then when the police arrive they'll they'll retreat, so they'll do hidden run protests like that around the city and uh they stay in constant contact with each other to organize those and keep the Hong Kong police constantly moving, chasing them around, and staying one step ahead of them it's It's very well done that side of it is very well done.
0: I feel like Kukio would admire that <laughs> I think he liked that. Uh, resistance attitude. There are a lot of things about the world that end up being very cold and inhuman, especially as the sizes of institutions get to be incredibly large. It's almost like the institution has its own self-interest that many of the people inside of it aren't really privy to or aware of, and sometimes it's to their detriment. So it could be a large government, it could be a large company, things like this oftentimes lack the Empathy and the compassion of an individual or a smaller group of people. So seeing protests like this and then just like, as you're saying here, that the tactics of protest strategy and stuff is pretty fun. Oh, yeah. Stick it to the man, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, that sentiment is very strong amongst a lot of protesters now. You now there's a sense that the police are not on their side mm-hmm. and that they're just stormtroopers for an oppressive government. Which is unfortunate because Hong Kong, as far as I know, has a relatively professional police force. You know, the attitude of cops who, uh, well, just in general, is that they enforce the law and that they try to do it impartially. So by antagonizing the police, you're not really helping your cause. I mean, it's true that they're shilling for the government, but that's because they have to. <laughs> they're police. You know, if they get called to a protest that is illegal and they have to arrest people, then that's what they're going to do. That's not really their fault. And their whole bag is trying to maintain public order. So well,
0: we've talked before about the institution of police and how hmm. you're basically relegating the monopoly on violence to a organization that is kind of representing the people and trying to keep the people safe and manage that. But it is still violence that they hmm. have the monopoly on. So yeah. there's a point where they're going to get violent if certain criteria are met police people are still people and they have family who are not in the police force. So that I think colors a lot of their perspective on how they see citizens and protests and stuff like this. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it also does create a place where people who have maybe a more violent or an aggressive nature to find a form of job where they have the ability to leverage that against other people. So, it's really a tough thing to figure out, I think, because historically and prehistorically it's been a really hard line to toe. where you have genuinely good police who you feel like are serving your people well and being honest and all that.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the trouble with focusing on the police is that uh, it takes away focus from the overarching strategy. You know, it makes it a battle between police and protesters rather than a battle between protesters in the government, which is where the focus really should be. Uh, you know, the police don't make political decisions. You know, They're just the foot soldiers. They're the guys who have to go out and deal with the problems. But they're not the decision makers at the top. And uh, if you focus too much on the police and police brutality and police reform and whatnot, you can lose sight of the overarching political objectives that you were originally protesting for. Which suits the government just fine. <laughs> The government doesn't mind it if you shit on the police and get in running street battles with them and call them pigs and do all this kind of thing, because that means that you're not focusing on them, mm-hmm. which they which they find perfectly fine. That just takes the heat off. Yeah. So it's important for a protest movement to have that focus. And overall, I think Hong Kong has kind of done pretty good with that, but I think it's just hard to not go down that path when you are in those running street battles. And you're getting beat in the head by, you know, this, that, or the other policeman. But that's pretty much where Hong Kong is. I project roughly at this point that it it'll probably get worse before it gets better. Biting commentary from John Smith, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Hot take here. Well, that's the best I got.
0: Well, I was telling some people at TwitchCon that that was the nice thing about a lot of the discussion we have here is it's a little bit more focused on laying down the facts and allowing the audience to make the inferences and decisions that they need to, rather than laying down the facts and then in addition telling people how they should interpret those facts. Mm Mm-hmm it's not as interactive and it also means that you're less likely to notice if there is a genuine problem with your perspective because there are a lot of times when like you didn't get the proper information like the information source that you had was pretty biased and you didn't factor that in so your perspective is warped until someone corrects you so it's good to kind of lay out the facts and see what people say and adjust accordingly being flexible
1: As best we can. Well, was there anything else that caught your eye?
0: Mm, I don't think so. And if it's pretty late where you are, let me check the uptime here. We've got an hour, so if you want to move into questions now, we can probably do with that, unless you had some notes that you
1: wanted to address. I do, actually, but... Well, you could hit it, then. If we have some questions, we can do those, too. Um, but before I do I just point out that uh, you may remember that two weeks ago well the last time we did this it had been a while before and uh, I pointed out last time that the world has kind of been on fire a Mm -hmm. little bit you know it was kind of a summer relatively mild summer not a whole lot going on then all of a sudden a whole bunch of stuff happened and uh, that's continued there's more stuff happening (laughs)
0: So I understand what you're saying and what you mean, but I'm just thinking of the Amazon fires, <laughs> well, which is also too. the case. I guess.
1: That too. Yeah. Fair point. No, there's, there's been more things popping up, more stories to kind of follow here. So I'll try to cover as many as I can here before I collapse on my keyboard. Um, before we get to that then let's let's try some of the questions here so let's see what we've got uh... let's see what's the over under in your opinion on trump succeeding and securing a second term in office i know this is out of left field but i'm curious as to your opinion and who else do you think has a strong chance of winning way too early to tell way too early to tell i have no idea and i don't think anybody really does You know, the trouble is that uh, it's super early in the election cycle in general. So even if this were normal political times, it would be very difficult to judge who has the highest probability of winning because so much can happen in a year in terms of uh, impacting public perceptions and how people vote. But mind you, that's even in normal times. We do not live in normal times. Um, We live in a very tumultuous uh, era basically, and it and we've t- you know, I've talked at length before about how economic stru- structural economic change and how this is a transitory period between equilibria and you know society is changing along with all these different economic livelihoods and you know what have you. So, we're very much in an era of churn, and so a lot of established norms and expectations are being challenged by all of these other changes that are going on. So, the basically- first thing
0: that came to mind for me with that is the control of information and how that flows around is very volatile. Mm-hmm. I think when it was limited to newspapers and stuff being shipped around, it wasn't quite as wild because, like, we're in the age right now where if there's one questionable phone call that gets leaked out or a questionable email that changes the public perception of a person, they can be out of the race just from that alone, Mm -hmm. which I think makes predicting stuff a lot harder. Like one of the candidates may be your favorite right now, and then something comes out, and they end up being a really terrible person, but they've been good at hiding it until this point. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So...
1: Yeah, there's that, and there's the fact that we're sort of in a political realignment where traditional political alliances are disintegrating and haven't yet been replaced by new ones. So there's a lot of people who are not really sure who to vote for, there's people that they don't trust, and, well, basically (laughs) mistrust is sort of the order of the day. Nobody really trusts the major parties or the main candidates anymore.
0: Which I guess feeds into the other point in that if you did make a mistake and it's the right kind of mistake, the public might like that and that could improve your chances. Yeah. So yeah. given the two of those, it's it's really hard to point and say who's going to exactly. make exactly. it.
1: Exactly. So I would say I have no idea. I just You can't predict this early on. In normal times, you wouldn't be able to, but especially not right now. God knows what the hell is going to happen in 2020. It's gonna be a ride. I was reading um, an article on foreignaffairs.com, which I would recommend for people interested in international relations. Um, they generally get some pretty high-profile writers. Uh, I mean, like, academic types, generally. Also some, you know, politicians and whatnot, but you know, you don't read it for them, mostly. But the reason I recommend it is that the quality is good and it's relatively cheap. It's It's one of the few that I actually bother to pay for. Cause it's actually affordable but I was reading an article on there talking about uh, US foreign policy and uh, what it might look like in 2020 and the prediction of the author was that it's gonna it was gonna get a lot more radical basically a lot of the people in the Trump administration that had been restraining some of his more um, exotic impulses shall we say a lot of those people have been removed over the past year or so And that alone would suggest that uh, the Trump administration would become more um, active. And it has been, you know, since those people have been removed. But going into an election year where the Trump administration wants to prove its worth, so to speak, ahead of the election, you know, have some deliverables that it can point at as wins, it may go out of its way to do some crazy shit in order to get those deliverables. So it may be desperate enough for, say a free trade deal with China, uh, or a deal with Iran or Venezuela, that it might give some big concessions of one sort or another just so that it could say it made a deal and has something to show for it. Uh, or it may go the other way and uh, be extremely belligerent in order to try to force uh, counterparties uh, to the table to make a deal. Uh, that was this author's prediction. Obviously, that's debatable and subject to uh, different perspectives perspectives uh but it it seems like a pretty credible prediction to me just because the trump administration uh, does seem to be pretty prone to theatrics they do seem to really love to kind of pop out with announcements and uh, bombastic claims and treaties and agreements and whatnot so ahead of an election in which there's an incentive to really try to puff themselves up so to speak uh I think it it's that does suggest that there's going to be some um, creative politics in 2020. So that could lead to a very interesting year. Even more interesting than the past three, and the past three have been pretty damn interesting, suffice to say. Whether or not that's a good thing or not is uh, down to personal preferences, personal political preferences, so make of that what you will.
0: Personally, I've said it before on stream, I'll say it again, Andrew Yang has played StarCraft, and I haven't researched enough, so that's where I am right now. (laughs) He did play Protoss, which I know some people are not okay with, but I'm willing to overlook that. Mm -hmm. I just like the conversation that he brings about stuff like automation and how technology is going to influence the economy and stuff like that. It seems like it's a pretty... Forward-thinking candidate to have, so even if he doesn't win, it should bring some good conversation to the debates. I put that in quotation marks, mm. which are basically, like you said, infomercials for candidates.
1: Oh god, yeah. I used to watch them when I was in college, and I never came never came back since. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing you can't. See. There's nothing you can see in those debates that you can't see on the candidates' websites the mm-hmm. front page. Just look at where they stand on issues. They'll have like a paragraph or whatever on each one. That's basically what you're going to see in the debate. There's generally not a lot else going on. Maybe somebody screws up and says something stupid or gets off message. That can happen. Uh, but generally, you're not going to see like an earnest political debate like what you might see in school or something. Mm-hmm. It's almost more of a test to see how good you are at being on T V. That's almost yeah. really more the more substantive. Ooh, this
0: guy was history. sweaty. I guess uh I guess he's not gonna be a good president because he was sweaty.
1: <laughs> oh god. You remember when Marco Rubio got shed for drinking that water? No. Oh that was um That was when he was running for president? Oh gosh, maybe it was might be showing my age here i didn't think it was all that long ago but maybe it was further back well marco rubio i think was giving a, a response to yeah i guess it was a while ago i think it was a response to the president's state of the union address president obama i think and uh he had to give the state he had to give the official republican response which has kind of become like a custom now the other the party out of power will respond to the president's uh, state of the union address and um at one point, while he was giving that response, he kind of lunged off screen for, for, like, a bottle of water and just quickly sipped it and then put it back. You know, it all happened in just, like, a second, but it was enough. That alone, that, that act, was enough to get him endless shit on the internet. It was a more innocent time, basically.
0: <laughs> Can you believe people drinking water in current year when they could have Gatorade?
1: That's unacceptable. <laughs> unacceptable. <clears throat> yeah, things change. Things have changed a lot in just a few years. Okay, next question. <laughs> um, let's see. What's the likelihood of diplomatic immunity being waived for Anne Sekoulis? Who the hell is Anne Sekoulis? I guess that's my answer. Who the hell is Anne Sekoulis? Uh oh, that okay. Yeah, there was um a diplo a U.S. diplomat in Britain, um and his wife apparently killed somebody in a car rat kid and run, and after the fact she left the country. So there's some uh, I didn't read too much into that because that's not, I don't think that's going to be like a foreign policy issue. I suspect she'll be extradited. You know, diplomatic immunity is not airtight. Um, it's not meant to be like a pass to commit crimes. <laughs> you know, um, if you're an actual diplomat and you commit a crime, then generally what happens is uh, they'll expel you. They'll tell you to GTFO. Um, but I don't think diplomatic immunity necessarily extends to family members who commit crimes like that. Yeah, I'm not, fami- I'm not super familiar with the circumstances under which diplomatic-, <laughs> diplomatic immunity can be waived and just who is covered by it. I know the diplomats certainly are, but families, I imagine, have some kind of clause, some kind of special treatment there on that. Basically, yeah, I don't think the US government is going to have a problem with extrad- <laughs> extraditing her if she did indeed kill somebody in a hit-and-run um, accident. You know, I didn't read too much into that either. So, relatively likely, I would say, if that is, in fact, a thing that can happen, because again, I'm not super familiar with diplomatic immunity. So, some ambiguous answers tonight. (laughs) uh, that's super in-depth.
0: Well, it's better to be honest than to bullshit through it, so we'll take it.
1: I can bullshit, too. (laughs) People want...
0: (laughs) Yo, Agent Smith, could you bullshit about this topic?
1: <laughs> anyway, so that's it for questions, I think. Uh, did we have some we didn't get to? I think that's what he said. Did we want to do the questions we didn't get to last time?
0: Well, it seemed like you had some cool stuff you wanted to go over, so...
1: I don't do know that. if I'd call it cool. I thought it was interesting, but cool's kind of a high bar when it comes to international relations. Mm-hmm. Kind of have to be a nerd to find it cool.
0: I mean, you're talking to a Starcraft streamer.
1: Starcraft is cool.
0: It's nerdy as well. True. It's nerdy cool.
1: It's nerdy cool. There you go. Well, let's see. North Korea launched a missile out of the water, and everyone's upset about that. Yeah, uh, they. Supposedly, they said they launched it out of a submarine, but people are pretty skeptical about their ability to do that. But they did launch it out of the ocean, probably off of some kind of underwater platform. So there's a fear that maybe they're developing a submarine-launched ballistic missile capability. Which is a problem, because if they ever managed to actually build a nuclear warhead that could fit on a ballistic missile, they could hypothetically build a submarine. That could then hold submarine-launched ballistic missiles with nuclear-tipped warheads, which is a problem because those are super difficult to stop. Well, I shouldn't say stop, but track. You know, if the if a country has their nukes in a missile silo, you can probably find the missile missile silo. If they're in a mobile launch site, that's harder to find, but still feasible. Uh, aircraft you can shoot down, so that's not as much of a problem, though still difficult. But launching them out of a submarine, that's tough, because submarines can be anywhere and they're kind of by design hard to find. So if North Korea actually did get a boomer, you know, a submarine with nuclear missiles on it, that would be a real strategic problem for the United States Navy. Which would. So the significance of that beyond the strategic threat is that uh, it was. A further escalation basically in the series of missile tests that have gone on for the past couple months. Uh, Basically the North Korean government is just trying to get attention, trying to get the United States to come back to the negotiating table, and they've just sort of been doing little things on the side, you know, little missile tests here and there to try to antagonize the United States into coming back. And uh, let me see here. This particular test was announced just hours after uh, they Let me rephrase that. The missile test happened just hours after North Korea announced that they were willing to return to talks. So that uh, was kind of a mixed signal, basically, Mm -hmm. which is what North Korea kind of specializes in. We want to come back and talk, but we're not going to give too many concessions, and here's proof.
0: Guys, we're going to play nice, but if we don't play nice, this is what we can do. (laughs)
1: Yeah, so that's that's the latest development in the North Korean no- negotiations. There's still no negotiations, and North Korea is still just, just kind of casually trolling the United States in the hope that the United States will give them some concessions. Probably not going to work, but who's to say? So there was that. Peru's government died. <laughs> they... uh There's been a whole shitstorm in Peru over the past year that just kind of won't end. It kind of started with um, Fujimori's daughter. Fujimori was a dictator in the mid-90s in Peru. And uh, he killed a bunch of people while trying to fight and suppress this uh, Maoist rebel group called the Shining Path, I think.
0: This is in Peru? This is like a Japanese sounding name and a Chinese, like political group. Is this correct?
1: <laughs> that's correct. That's this correct. Is weird. All yeah, right, that's... I'm interested. Well, the thing about South America is that they actually have um. They have a fair amount. They've had a fair amount of Asian immigration over the past couple hundred years, so there are relatively significant minorities of Asian people there. It's not super large. It's not like a whole lot larger than the United States per se, but. They are there, and they've been there a long time, and so uh, it's not necessarily unusual to see politicians or, well, just people in general who have uh, Asian backgrounds. And in this case, Fujimori was one of them. He was a uh, descendant from Japanese who had migrated to Peru. I don't know, like fifty hundred. I don't remember exactly, but a while ago. And he, I think, was fully is fully assimilated. He's just a Peruvian dude who happens to have Japanese ancestry. Um, <laughs> This is kind of a side note, but I thought it was kind of funny. Uh, His nickname is uh, El Chino, I think, uh, in Peru, which means uh, the Chinese. Because in Peru, Chinese basically is just Asian. So even though he's not at all Chinese, that was the nickname that stuck. And he never corrected it. He just ran with it because, you know, being a politician, he appreciates a catchy nickname. You know, it caught on in the media, so he just rolled with it. He's like, yeah, I'm El Chino. crafty guy yeah it's dick- like they make
0: your nickname billy the kid and you're like but i'm a man no <laughs> uh, it's a nickname just take it
1: kind of take what you can get whatever gets your name in the papers no such thing as bad pr as the old saying goes so this guy was dictator for a couple years he eventually did crush the shining path he actually uh well the military more specifically arrested their leader and They had this big horse and pony show where they brought him out in the media. They had him in a cage. (laughs) They had him in an actual, like, it was the size of a room. It wasn't, like, small, but it was, like, a prison cell. And uh, they had him in, like, an orange jumpsuit, like, prison uniform. But the thing is, they didn't just, like, show him to the media. They had the whole thing covered in, like, this big cloth. So then they brought out the media and then they lifted the cloth like it was an unveiling and they revealed this guy in the cage. I think he started ranting some Marxist stuff while he was there, too. The the whole thing was quite the show, basically. So Fujimori got the credit for that. And if you're from Peru and listening to this, please correct any of this bullshit that I might be getting wrong. By all means, I don't want to come and get this wrong. This is just what I'm remembering. and It's been a while. So please correct me. But... That said, Fujimori got the credit for that. He was pretty popular for a while, but eventually people kind of got tired of the, you know, civil rights violations. So they eventually throwed him out. I think it was actually a corruption scandal that, uh, that finally kind of downed him. I think that's what got him kicked out. So that ended his administration and Peru kind of returned to democracy, um, or at least democratic uh, governance anyway. And so then things were fine for a while, you know. But uh, over the past year or so, the establishment political parties, tell me if this doesn't sound familiar, the, polit- the establishment political parties lost legitimacy, and people started turning to Fujimori's daughter. Uh, I think her name is Keiko Fujimori. <clears throat> and uh, Keiko was kind of running on a similar platform to her father. Not not be a dictator, mind you, but just sort of conserv- a conservative political platform. And uh, that obviously concerned people who were afraid that she might, you know, become a dictator, like her father was. Uh, and the result is that there was a campaign run by a guy named, I hope I'm getting Kaczynski. And uh, Kaczynski's campaign was basically based around anti-corruption and reform. So, you know, by all means fight corruption and whatnot, but don't do it with the daughter of a former dictator. That was their sort of perspective on that. So Kaczynski versus Fujimori, um, they don't... Let me think here. Kaczynski won very narrowly. It was very close. And uh, the trouble, though, is that Fujimori's party did pretty well in the uh, legislative election. So even Kaczynski won the presidency. He didn't have a lot of allies to work with in the legislature with whom to pass his... uh, Desired reforms. So, not a lot was really done under the Kaczynski presidency. Uh, so, there was a stalemate. Everybody was yelling at each other. Everybody was upset, but nothing was happening until uh, Odebrecht. Um, if you're from Latin America, you've probably heard of the Odebrecht scandal, which was this huge ass uh, corruption scandal that started in Brazil, Operation Car Wash. In which the Brazilian government and its investigators found out, uh, discovered that a car wash was being used uh, to launder money uh, that had been gleaned basically from political corruption. Political actors had bribed people, and they were trying to funnel the money out. So the investigation spread, and it started netting more and more people, corrupt networks discovered, and eventually it kind of all got linked back to a construction firm. I think it's a construction firm called Odebrecht. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm sorry if I'm not. But Odebrecht was a major international corporation uh, based in Latin America. And uh, they were involved mostly in construction, but they were also involved in a industrial scale corruption. Uh, It's terrible grammar. They were also involved in industrial scale corruption in Latin America. Uh, Almost every country they did business in, they were involved in some kind of Uh, bribery or kickbacks or you know what have you and so Operation Car Wash sort of revealed that network of corruption that Obrecht was in and in Peru it ended up it ended up getting linked to Kaczynski and I don't remember exactly what the allegations were and just how he was involved exactly but there was an investigation launched and there was enough opponents in the legislature to start impeachment proceedings. Specifically, Fujimori's party kind of spearheaded that effort, so everybody was really upset at Kaczynski. He lost public support, and eventually he was removed and uh he was well no was let me think here because there was a lot of political maneuvering beforehand. I think it's that he was going to step down, and fujimori Keiko Fujimori tried to negotiate some kind of deal and uh, I'm very roughly remembering this, but Keiko Fujimori's brother actually defected from her party in order to oppose impeachment. And so impeachment ended up getting delayed for a while. But it didn't work in the long run, and eventually they finally did impeach him. Although Keiko's relationship with her brother was somewhat compromised. That may sound stupid and trivial, but uh, in Latin America and political cultures... Like those of Latin America, family ties are pretty important in politics. Uh, So having that kind of breakup could seriously test the uh, integrity of a political coalition. I don't know if that's what happened in Peru, uh, but that's what I would be looking for if I were reading into this further. Anyway, this is sort of droning on. But uh, the takeaway is that Kaczynski was removed, and he was replaced by the guy who's currently in it. I forget his name. Actually, I could just look here. I'm sure I've got it here somewhere. No, I don't. Well, anyway, the new president uh, wanted to pass reforms. wasn't happening, and so he dissolved parliament or the legislature. Uh, He can do that legally because there had been two... uh, There's a provision in the Peruvian Constitution uh, that says the president can dissolve Congress um, again, at Congress or Parliament, whichever it is, if there had been two failed votes of no confidence. Uh, again, Keiko Fujimori and her party are pretty powerful in the Congress, so they were having these votes of no confidence. Well, they had two of them, and so technically legal for the president to dissolve the uh, legislature. Now, that's not dissolve as in just get rid of the legislature, now the president can do whatever they want. That's done uh, to set up new elections. So they're going to hold have new elections, basically. But it was controversial because uh, of the circumstances. Um, Public confidence is a bit shaken in the current party that holds the presidency. And uh, Fujimori, obviously, is dead set opposed to them as well. So one of the things that happened is that the parliament, before it was dissolved, allegedly, uh, they voted to remove uh, the current sitting president. And so... That led to a big, well not a big, but a minor crisis wherein there was a question of whether uh, Congress had been legitimately dissolved, whether the president had been legitimately removed, or uh, for that matter just who was in charge at that point. Uh, Congress, for its part, said that it was not dissolved uh, before it removed the president, so they're arguing that he's out. Um, But then the president says that they were, so Basically, what ended up happening is that the vice president resigned, which sounds a little non sequitur, but the vice president was next in line. And by resigning, uh, she basically just de facto gave the office to the president. Um, the legality of that is a little shaky, but that's kind of the way it is in political systems that are having trouble like this. Uh, You know, if the president had been removed, the vice president should have been president. So according to Congress in Peru, uh, the vice president was technically the president. So by resigning then, there's basically just nobody in charge. Uh, So so long as that raises the question then of who the executive branch is obeying, who are the administrative agencies taking orders from. And uh, basically, the president was able to get the agencies on his side, get the military on his side, get the police on his side and a critical mass of public support from the citizenry. That was enough to maintain his hold on power. Again, questionable legality, but that's just kind of the way it goes. So the president is still in the office, the parliament is still dissolved, and new le- new elections are upcoming. Fun times in Peru.
0: <laughs> a complete mess.
1: That seems to be the order of the day in the world these days. But I don't know if that's cool as you say, but I thought it was interesting. Drama. Huh?
0: Yeah, definitely interesting. I agree. There's a a thing that came to mind when you were saying that uh, there's a lot of Asian influence in South America that some people don't know of. I think Dragon Ball Z is more popular in uh, Latin America than anywhere else in the world. Just kind of funny.
1: Oh, sorry. What was that?
0: Dragon Ball Z. The television program. Mm-hmm. It's a cartoon. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> there was a... I think one of the finales of one of the seasons, they had a public showing that I think was partially sponsored by the government of Mexico. Oh, really? Yeah, which Japan was kind of like, hey, could you not do that? It's like our copyright stuff. And they were like, no, this is the best. <laughs> so they just had like a huge TV screen kind of out on the lawn and everyone's watching it together <laughs> as a community event.
1: Kind of cool. Oh, nice. Yeah, community is pretty important. I don't know if Dragon Ball Z is the best manifestation of that, but...
0: But is it the fourth best? Maybe.
1: Maybe. <laughs> It suggests social cohesion, which is always a nice positive. Let's see, so we were talking about the Ukraine earlier. The Ukraine is moving forward with uh, a plan to have elections in rebel her- rebel-held areas. Um, this is kind of a controversial thing in Ukraine, because uh, some nationalists are really critical of the idea of allowing uh, elections in rebel-held areas when they're still not technically properly controlled by the Ukrainian government. And uh, even people who are kind of okay with it are skeptical that the elections will really be free and fair. But the Zelensky government seems to be moving forward with it. They're trying to uh, implement the quote-unquote Steinmeier formula, which was apparently a formula for pushing for peace. Uh, in Ukraine that was designed earlier in the conflict, I think around 2015, 2016. And uh, basically the idea is that uh, the rebel-held areas will have elections and have self-governance, but the elections will be held according to Ukrainian rules, should be free and fair, and the provinces will be reincorporated into the Ukraine formally. So that's nominally the deal, well, nominally the process in a nutshell, but there's been a lot of... uh, There's been a lot of problems in how to actually implement that plan over the past few years. Specifically, there's been disagreements about the sequence of events. Uh, Obviously, the Ukrainian government wants to reassert its authority over the provinces first and then grant autonomy, but the rebels don't trust uh, the Ukrainian government, uh, so they want to have the elections first uh, before the Ukrainian government comes back. And up till now, that's just kind of been a stalemate, but the Zelensky government seems to be signaling that it's going to that it's okay with having the elections first. Let's see. So let's see where we are with that. Yeah, the Zelensky government is uh, also signaling good faith by withdrawing from two villages uh, that are near rebel held territory and planning they say that they're planning on withdrawing the military generally. So that's a sort of first step in de-escalation there, to try to signal good faith, and uh, try to get the rebels on board with that. Now some of the preconditions that uh, the Zelensky government... they didn't actually have preconditions at first, at least that were none that were publicly revealed, but then they got a lot of shit from nationalists, so... they released a list of preconditions that they're asking the rebels uh, to meet in order to move forward with the peace process. One is a full ceasefire, it's kind of obvious. Uh, The withdrawal of all, quote-unquote, foreign military units uh, from Donbass, that's the rebel-held region. Um, Foreign military units is sort of a euphemism for Russian troops. Uh, The Russian government denies they have any there. Nobody believes them. So the Ukrainian government is uh, asking as a precondition that those troops be removed. Uh, These
0: aren't Russian troops. Look, they don't even have Russian troop uniforms.
1: (laughs) (coughs) Yeah, well... They shouldn't have posted it on Facebook. That's, that's how a lot of the evidence that they were there came out. All of these guys... Uh, well, not Facebook, I guess, Ivokonk, or however that's pronounced. The sort of Russian equivalent to Facebook. A lot of Russian troops who were sent to the Ukraine, uh, allegedly by the Russian government, posted that they were Russian troops fighting in the Ukraine, which created a sizable body of evidence for Internet sleuths and ended up being presented at a number of official inquiries. So That evidence was a little bit damning. That eventually led the Russian military to implement a bunch of reforms about uh, when personnel could post to social media. There's a lot more restrictions than there used to be, if I remember correctly. Uh, Regardless, uh, full ceasefire, withdrawal of Russian troops from Donbass. Ukrainian border guards are to be deployed on the Russian-Ukraine border. Obviously that's a part of the government reasserting its authority. Uh, Russia and Ukraine are to exchange all remaining prisoners, pretty standard. And then all elections must be open and fair. Good luck with that.
0: You should always do the right thing. You should call your parents on their birthday. (laughs) And you should file your taxes on time.
1: (coughs) That's about what it comes down to. You know, the ceasefire, the prisoner exchange... Uh, those are pretty standard parts of any peace process, so you would kind of expect that. With the withdrawal of military units, that's just sort of the uh, rebel equivalent of the Ukrainian military withdrawing from the uh, theater. So that's more of um reciprocation in that case. So really the peace deal here, well really the agreement here, comes down to the prisoner exchange and holding free and fair elections. And obviously uh, deploying the border guards. So that's something to keep an eye on. Um, the rebels are deeply skeptical of the Ukrainian government. They don't really trust them at all, pretty much. And uh, they've issued some statements after the L- 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 Zelensky government uh, issued its statement about its plans in this regard. And uh, the statement that the rebels gave out was not entirely flattering, shall we say. So... It doesn't seem like it's likely that this is going to result in a <clears throat> full return to peace, but it is at least posit- a positive step. So it's a, sh- it's a shift in the right direction. But we'll see what happens with it. The Zelensky government has been pretty gung-ho about reform, but it hasn't actually done a whole lot yet, so this could be the first uh, their first major attempt at really trying to address Ukraine's problems. <clears throat> Let's see. What else do we have here?
0: We did get a pronunciation tip. It is called V contact, I believe. V
1: contact. Okay. Yeah, Facebook for
0: Ukraine and or Russia, or is it just Ukraine?
1: Uh, it's like uh, the former Soviet Union, basically. Hmm. It's uh, those Slavic areas: Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, uh, Kazakhstan. Cool. Those areas. They all kind of use the Basically, Russian-speaking areas. It's, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's very much a Russian service, I think. be Contact. I'll have to remember that. Let's see. Did, I, did we talk about the UK Supreme Court ruling? Nope. Oh, okay. Well, this will be a Brexit update then. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think we did talk about uh, Boris Johnson prorogging Parliament, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So after that, I think it was uh, the Scottish devolved government uh, took the British government to court, the Johnson government to court over the prorogging. Uh, they argued that it was an illegal shutdown of Parliament, that he was basically just trying to prevent the Parliament from carrying out its duties, and that it was therefore illegitimate. And uh, that went all the way to the UK Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled that that was the case, that it was an illegal shutdown of Parliament and that uh, the proroguing was stricken, basically, the cancelled. And Parliament actually came back early, immediately after. And there's been pretty much an epic shit show in British media <laughs> ever since. Because uh, conservatives are saying that it's... Um, basically what we in the United States would call quote-unquote judicial activism. Uh, basically, court overreach, that they did too much, that they don't have the power to do that, to cancel a, what they argue was a legitimate prorogue ahead of a Queen speech, which is sort of the custom. Uh, they also argue that uh, it was a political decision because uh, the queen or- organizes the uh, Queen speech and the prorogue according to the advice of the uh, government, in this case, the Johnson government, and because it's just advice, you can't really argue that the advice is, you know, bad or you know, mal-intented. Uh So that was sort of their perspective. But then either, everybody else is saying it was illegal. You can't do that. <laughs> it's, the whole thing is bullshit. So let's let's get on with it. Get Parliament back and get them talking about um, probably doing nothing, which has been the pattern up till now. But. At least they're back doing in, in Parliament doing nothing. So that's something. So At some, least they have to go to work like everybody else. <laughs> so some people have been calling for Boris Johnson to resign because of the court case. That's obviously not going to happen. Um, it doesn't inherently imply a, a Brexit defeat for Johnson. You know, this doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. Uh, but it was kind of a slap in the face by the part of the judiciary. Whether or not it was a legal slap in the face or not seems to be where a lot of the debate is. Uh, If nothing else I would say that it gives some momentum to Parliament in its effort to force the government to ask for an extension and avoid a no-deal Brexit. So that's kind of a positive sign in that sense, in so much as that's uh, desirable, which obviously is itself debatable. But yeah, that's where they are. That's the latest dysfunction in British politics.
0: Wow, I feel... I was going to say refreshed, but I don't feel refreshed. (laughs) It's kind of funny. And I'm kind of interested in what's going to happen next, but I don't feel refreshed. But thank you for sharing.
1: No problem. (laughs) I'm always happy to refresh. Gosh, what else do we have here? I guess we could get to some of the old questions, then we can kind of get those out of the way. Um, let's see. Do you have any insights on the recent now uh, we talked about that? We did that one. We did Nicaragua. I think we did that one. What do you think of Trump's locked and loaded tweet about the attack on Saudi Arabia? Doesn't really matter what I think, because now we kind of have the response. Uh, well, are you familiar with this, Neuro?
0: No? What is this?
1: So, you remember that Saudi Arabia had its big oil refinery attacked a few weeks ago by the drone...
0: Drone attacks. Drone yes. attacks
1: by the Houthi rebels, or Iran, depending on who you talk to. So, after that, Trump went on to Twitter and did his Twitter bullshit and said that he was locked and loaded and he's going to do a thing and blah 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 and the usual sort of intimidating bullshit that presidents do. uh uh-huh. So... That happened and there was some question about whether the United States government how the United States government was going to respond to the attack <clears throat> and some people believe that the locked and loaded comment was evidence that there was going to be a war or some kind of retaliatory strike or what have you but now it seems pretty clear that the response of the US government is to do football <laughs> which mm-hmm. surprised surprised a lot of people you know the Trump administration is kind of known for being or at least acting belligerent. So it was kind of expected that they would do something. Certainly the Saudis thought they were going to do something.
0: Don't worry, we're just posturing. It's fine.
1: Well, a lot of people in the international relations community also were wondering how the U.S. government would respond, and it was assumed that they would have some kind of strong response uh, of some kind, but it hasn't really happened, you know, and I think that surprised a lot of people. And the Saudi government, for its part, seems to have mellowed a little bit. They seem to have become a little more open to negotiation since they've uh, discovered, much to their surprise, along with everybody else's, that a direct attack on Saudi soil does not elicit a retaliatory strike of some kind from the United States military, which implies that they're a lot more vulnerable than they or anybody else ever expected they would be. So that's a pretty significant shift in Middle Eastern politics, um, that the U.S. de facto... A uh, protectorate over the Saudis and other Gulf states is not really a protectorate, so much as a vague promise that they'll do something, maybe, if they feel like it, in order to protect those states. So that's kind of brought into question the commitment of the U.S. to protecting its allies in the Middle East, and in turn there's some question about, one, what that's going to mean for Iran. Obviously Iran kind of did this to try to provoke the United States into giving concessions, and They've kind of been rewarded with a more conciliatory Saudi stance on the issue, which suggests that maybe they could do this more and maybe get something more in return. So that's an incentive problem for the Iranians. But on the other hand, you could argue that it's just the Trump administration not wanting to get dragged into a conflict, and that maybe it means that the Saudis will be more acclimical, well, amicable to a deal, and maybe that's a good thing, because then you could have some kind of negotiated settlement. That's a pretty charitable read, <laughs> because again, not responding is kind of a negative thing. It kind of suggests a moral hazard there. But that being said, if the Trump administration and the broader part of the American public are not interested uh, in intervening on behalf of the Saudi government, that would be under, under. It's understandable then that the U.S. government would not really respond strongly. So, pretty significant finding there. You know, the uh, U.S commitment to Saudi Arabia has not really been tested much in history. So now that it finally has, it's kind of interesting to see where the border is and people are kind of modifying their calculate modifying their foreign policy calculus accordingly. So there's some there's going to be some musical chairs basically over the next couple months uh, as uh, different countries kind of calibrate according to the new normal that they perceive. So those are some thoughts on that. I hope that if I don't answer anybody's somebody's question satisfactorily, feel free to ask again, and you know I'll try to return to it and maybe get to, get to the crux of it that I missed the first time. <clears throat> Let's see. Next question: Why was the Hong Kong extradition bill introduced at all? It had to do with a murder in Taiwan. There was a man who murdered his girlfriend in Taiwan and then ran back to Hong Kong before he could be arrested. And the Chinese government wanted to arrest him, that is to say the Beijing government, uh, but they couldn't because they did not have an extradition agreement with Hong Kong. It may surprise people to know that you would need an extradition agreement, uh to move criminals between China and Hong Kong, but you actually do because that's written into the special autonomous region status that Hong Kong has. That sort of one country, two systems, one country, two systems uh, thing that they've got going over there. That Hong Kong manages its own criminals and has its own justice system, and if they are going to transfer people over to uh, mainland China, then that technically would require an extradition treaty according to the system in place as it is now. So the extradition bill that was introduced in Hong Kong was meant to address that, to actually have that in place so that maybe the next time somebody murders somebody, they can actually get arrested uh, in China. Of course, that was a little bit bullshit because I think he was investigated in Hong Kong for that, although I don't, don't quote me on that. I'm not sure what really came of him. But regardless, mainland wanted to get him and uh, the murder was an excuse to try to get that extradition bill in place. Now, of course, the fear is that if there was an extradition bill in place, the Chinese government would not use it only to get criminals, but they would also use it to get people who were basically dissidents, uh, people who opposed Communist Party rule and the party wanted to get one way or the other. They could frame for one crime or another, or even just say they were guilty. They could just make something up and then ask the Hong Kong government to extradite them based on those claims. And so in that way, the Chinese government could get around the fact that Hong Kong is a separate system and arrest people and in in turn intimidate people uh, into conforming to Beijing's political preferences uh, by threatening them with extradition. But nominally, it was the murder that was sort of the uh, genesis of the whole thing. So that that was how the ball got rolling on that. It was meant to address a sort of legal loophole there that uh, criminals, and apparently a murderer, could exploit for their own benefit. So let's see. Is it true that Theresa May was the quote-unquote fall guy on the Brexit sword and Boris never wanted Brexit until it became advantageous for his career? I can't really say for sure because I'm not an insider. You know, and I, unfortunately, I'm not a telepath either. So I, I can't really say for sure just what was in the minds of uh, political leaders at the time. I don't think it's fair to say Theresa May was the fall guy, uh, because Boris Johnson was definitely running for prime minister. There was a political competition within the Conservative Party uh, among the Tories for the position of prime minister after Cameron stood down after the Brexit vote. And uh, Boris Johnson, among others, were very much involved in that. I think Grove was the other one. Johnson, Grove, May, and then another woman whose name nobody apparently remembers because she kind of came out of nowhere. So they were all definitely pushing for it. So I think that kind of disavows this notion that there was a fall guy. If there was a fall guy, it seems like the Conservative Party would have kind of rallied more around them, so to speak, and to ensure that the fall guy got the position instead of having that cutthroat competition that they ended up actually having. So I don't know that I would say May is the fall guy, the Brexit sword. I don't know if uh, Boris Johnson... I don't know if you can say that he didn't want Brexit. I think it's true for a lot of conservative politicians that they said that they wanted the Brexit referendum and maybe supported Brexit and did so thinking that Brexit would never actually pass. You know, we've talked about that before, but I don't know if Boris Johnson was one of those guys. Johnson, even before the referendum, had been a guy who had campaigned for a referendum on Brexit. I don't know that he'd ever actually come out and said that he was for Brexit, Somebody more familiar with British politics would have to comment on that. Hopefully, we have someone in chat who can. Uh, but he definitely had been on the record saying that uh, he was for the independence referendum and supported it. So he kind of positioned himself as a populist, basically. But just how much of a populist he really was, I don't know. And I don't, you know, without knowing him more and knowing more of his history, I can't really comment let's see what's your take on the Hong Kong protests as they relate to the Chinese economy and what's your take on the Chinese economy in general those are some big questions okay I don't think the Hong Kong protests relate to the Chinese economy and I'm assuming here when you say the Chinese economy that you're talking about the mainland Chinese economy generally when people talk about the Hong Kong economy they talk about it separately from the mainland economy it's true that there are some linkages there but they're pretty distinctive And uh, again, Hong Kong has a lot of autonomy, so they kind of do their own thing for the most part, even economically. But uh, the Chinese economy, I don't think, has much bearing on the protests, at least in terms of the mainland. And I don't even really think that the Hong Kong economy has a lot of bearing on it. Obviously, there's a lot of people in Hong Kong who are upset about high housing prices, which are just prohibitively high for the broader part of the population, and there's just not enough public housing to kind of counteract that. Doesn't help that they have a bunch of zoning laws that favor landowners that make the make it difficult to build new housing. That's actually the bigger problem there. Uh, but regardless, I don't think that's really a primary motivating factor for the protesters. You know, in the five demands that they issued uh, that we talked about earlier, housing isn't one of them. They haven't really homed in on economic issues. Uh, probably smart to stay focused on. specific political objectives, in this case the extradition bill and the peripheral related issues, if you start throwing in economics you could uh, occupy it, so to speak, and end up with uh, too disheveled and decentralized a set of objectives uh, to the detriment of the movement, kind of like what Nero was talking about earlier with the Occupy movement. So I don't think those economies uh, have a lot of bearing there. I think it is mostly a political Uh, event, that is to say the protests are mostly a political event, Uh, the manifestation of the disenchantment and fear over what Hong Kong's future will be under communist China. Uh, Let's see, and what are my thoughts on the Chinese economy in general? Okay, let me think here. The Chinese economy in general is manufacturing-driven and investment-driven. Those are sort of the two main things there. Uh, they want services to become a bigger part of the economy. The government, that is to say, wants that. Uh, but that's kind of a hard thing to drive. What they really want is to move up the value chain so that there are high-value industries that uh, produce high-paying jobs. So that the Chinese economy can become a developed economy. Um, it, nobody's really done that before, so it's pretty difficult. And a lot of the stuff they do is pretty experimental in that regard. Uh, including some dumb stuff that they're doing right now. Artificial urbanization is probably not going to end well, but they're going to try it, it seems. <clears throat> Regardless, that's manufacturing, investment are the two main things. Uh, manufacturing is partly export-driven, uh, but as the Chinese domestic economy has grown, more and more manufacturing has catered to domestic, catered to domestic demand. Uh, which is why the trade war isn't having as much of an impact as uh, you might think on manufacturing in China, although it is definitely being, has been deleterious. Uh, agriculture is sort of backward. well, I shouldn't say backwards, but it's not as modern as it could be, and the Chinese government has uh, started pushing hard to modernize it. That kind of ties into that artificial urbanization thing that they're trying. If you're going to move people out of agriculture, agricultural areas, then that means fewer people producing food. And if fewer people are going to be producing food but you want to maintain the same level of food production, that means you have to improve the productivity of the fewer farmers you have after the fact. So the Chinese government is trying to get its farmers to invest in industrialization and modern farming practices uh, so that they can boost productivity there. That may or may not work. We'll see. It's still early days. I kind of wonder if the whole swine flu pig thing over in China right now... Have you heard of this, Neuro?
0: No, I've heard of swine flu, but not related to China in this
1: case. So there was a massive outbreak of a new strain of swine flu in China um, a few months ago, I guess. I guess I haven't been following it too closely, but a few months ago. And it's killed a huge number of pigs, such that the price of pork is uh, increasing significantly in China. And uh, my question is, I don't know this, but I'm kind of curious if maybe this productivity push in agriculture might be partly responsible in so much as, uh, you know, industrial, I don't want to say pig farming, Um, (laughs) whatever the technical term for that is, I'm blanking out.
0: Now they're pushing out robo pigs.
1: (laughs) Whatever that is. Trying to industrialize it involves basically factory farming, I guess you could call it that. And uh, I kind of wonder, because that involves um, pig a lot of pigs being in very close proximity, so I wonder if that didn't make the swine flu spread faster uh, because they've been doing that. That's sheer speculation on my part. Definitely don't at me on that. That's more of a question than an assertion on my part. Uh, but given that that's, that productivity push is happening, I kind of wonder if that ties in at all. Or if maybe if, if it doesn't tie in, if it at least has had an effect. Anyway... Agriculture, China actually is the world's top agricultural producer. They produce more agricultural goods than any other country on earth, including the United States. In fact, not only do they produce more than the United States, they actually produce a lot more than the United States. It's not a small margin. The problem is uh, they don't produce enough for their domestic consumption. So even though they produce the most in the world, they still have to import a lot because it's just not enough to feed 1.4 billion people. So they produce a lot, and a lot of it is labor-intensive. They don't have, again, like I said earlier, it's not uh, capital-intensive production. It is mostly by hand, pretty much, you know, physical labor uh, by farm workers. So it's not terribly productive, basically, is what I'm getting at. So let's see, that's the manufacturing sector, that's uh, agriculture um, investment is generally what the government leans on during economic downturns, but they're kind of moving away from that because that's kind of a spent force. You know, they've done that so much over the past 10 years, in particular after 2008, that they've run up a bunch of debt uh, among state-owned enterprises and among local governments, all of which took part in that big stimulus effort after 2008 and borrowed a shit ton of money and have continued to borrow money. And it's gotten to a point where it's kind of a problem. Uh, so nobody there is some criticism that maybe there's so much debt sloshing around that there's a debt crisis in the making that could result in an epic economic implosion that's unlikely i think because china still has a pretty strong centralized government that is not terribly open you know to the world economy to world trade um it's it's open to world trade but it's not as open as you might think the government kind of goes out of its way to kind of try to sterilize uh exchanges there that's I can get more into that if somebody wants us, but that's kind of a whole other conversation. Uh, but what I'm driving at here, basically, is that China's financial sector is kind of a mess. Uh, the financial sector is not... well, it's new, for one. you know, It's kind of embryonic, but also it's just not particularly well regulated. And uh, there's a moral hazard problem, because the Chinese government has shown that it's willing to intervene to prevent losses, which mean, which encourages risky behavior. And uh, another problem with the Chinese financial sector is that a lot of it is in the shadow banking sector. Uh, that is to say, a lot of the money that gets <clears throat> sloshed around you know, in uh, China's financial markets is actually invested by uh, actors who are not formal financial inst- institutional actors. Uh, it's like a guy you know, somebody in your personal network who knows a guy, and they invest the money for you and that happens because uh, you can get better returns in the shadow banking sector than you can in the formal banking sector. And the problem with that is that it means that the Chinese government is not really in a position to do anything about a potential financial crisis, you know, if the government wants to needs access to resources with which to counteract a crisis, it can't really tap, tap the traditional banking sector. Because uh, it doesn't really have a lot of the financial a lot of the financial resources available to it, a lot of those financial resources are in the gray market, so to speak, or even in the black market, which isn't a part of the market that the is not really subject to u s to Chinese government to the writ of the law, basically uh, the Chinese government can't really get to that money, which puts them at a disadvantage. Let's see so that's uh, services. The tech sector is doing pretty well. It's been growing like gangbusters for the past 10 years, and they've got some technologies there that are more advanced than even the US, like uh, paying by phone being the classic example. That's the one that everybody likes to point to now. Uh, But there has been a problem with uh, the trade war, which I hadn't really thought would really impact China's tech sector that much, Uh, but it actually has because of uh, investor confidence. I mean obviously China's tech sector that the part of the chinese the part of the Chinese tech sector that produces um, hardware like uh you know whatever <laughs> I'm planking out, it's very late. you know, please be patient with me. Uh, but whatever tech hardware of one sort or another re- requires inputs from the United states u s semiconductors and other such things, and so the trade war obviously has impacted them, but the software side of the tech sector. This is the part that I did not think would be impacted that much by the trade war because I had thought that most of their demand came from China. I hadn't thought that they were that well integrated into the rest of the world, the digital economy. But apparently they are. Uh, apparently they have offices in the United States and they have uh, they sell a fair amount. They generate a fair amount of revenue from the United States as well. So it's not so much as to be crushing That is to say, they haven't really been impacted by tariffs all that much, because, you know, it's kind of harder to tariff digital goods. And uh, also, I just totally forgot. Well, (laughs) I blanked out. Regardless, it has impacted them solely because of investor confidence. The tech sector, like in the United States is heavily influenced by market confidence because a lot of the money that they make is actually just made from people shoveling money into them on the expectation that they're going to get returns later on. And because markets in China are super paranoid about losing money and about the potential impact of the trade war on the tech sector, uh, as well as a lot of people just withdrawing money from investments uh, to try to protect them, to take on more defensive portfolios, All of that has resulted in money moving out of the tech sector in China and slower growth, you know, less readily available money. It's probably not going to be a long-term problem, but for the short to medium term, it's probably going to put a dent in their growth. Yeah, I guess overall, if I had to summarize China's economy, it's grown a lot, it's more sophisticated than its critics kind of give it credit for, but they still got a long way to go. You know, they still haven't really moved up to the top of the value chain Producing premium goods, you know top-of-the-line market leaders top-of-the-notch innovation They've got some of that, but it's not really systematic yet They're, They're just not quite there yet, and it's not clear if they'll be able to you know That's kind of the big open question whether or not China's economy can really fully modernize That's what I can remember anyway, so I Know there's more I'm sure there's a bunch of stuff. I'm forgetting but my take on the Chinese economy was sort of the question. So that's just some information there and a conclusion. Let's see, and we did get some more questions. How about an update on Netanyahu elections? That's actually one of the things I had notes on. Uh, let's see if I can find that. So as you may remember, Nero, uh, Israel had elections, few months ago, I think, and they went to absolutely nowhere because none of the political parties were able to form a governing coalition that had a majority of seats in Parliament. And in Israel's constitution, when that happens, you have another election, as far as I know. So they set one up and they just had it, and the results are not all that different from the last time. <laughs> So there's a strong desire not to have a third election, but there's also a strong desire by a lot of political actors in Israeli politics to get rid of Netanyahu. A lot of people really hate him at this point. A lot of people really love him, too, which is why he's probably not going away. But the negotiations to form the new government are ongoing, and it's not really clear what that's going to look like. So let me see here. Let me check my notes real quick here. Yeah, so one of the things that happened is during the talks over a new government, uh, an Arab block of uh, parties, or politicians rather, in Israel's parliament actually came out and put their weight, put their support behind Gantz. Gantz is the uh, leader of the Blue and White Coalition, which is opposing Netanyahu. And it was unusual for that to happen, because normally Arab politicians in Israel don't, well, don't do that. <laughs> That's pretty much the long and short of it. It's uh, pretty unusual for them to support a re- what is still a relatively conservative coalition. It's not like blue and white is super liberal or anything. Uh, but the Arab politicians don't want Netanyahu, so they decided that they were going to de facto kind of align with blue and white. Didn't really work. Um, it seemed like uh, the government was going to a, a government would be negotiated between blue and white and Netanyahu's coalition, but as it was, those talks failed, and so the government uh, asked Netanyahu to form a government, and that I, I, that might sound confusing in a parliamentary system, uh, you have a president, you know the head of the state, basically, and uh, they're responsible for facilitating the formation of governments. Ideally, from an election, there will be one party that has most of the the seats, and that'll be the one that forms the government. So they can just go to the president and say, okay, I've got a government, let's go. Um, If they don't have enough seats, but they have enough uh, partners willing to form a majority coalition, that can work too. But if nobody has has a majority, then the next step is for the president to ask one of the parties to try to form a coalition. That's like official permission. That's like a it's part of the process. Normally it's sort of a formality, but uh in this case it's an actual basically request to try to form a coalition. It'll probably go nowhere, but uh in this case the government went with Netanyahu's coalition, so they kind of has the first opportunity to try to form a government here. Again, if they haven't been able to do it up till now, they probably won't be able to do it going forward, but this buys them some time to try to figure something out. Again, this is my rough understanding. I'm not super into Israeli politics and political institutions, but this is me trying to remember what I read anyway. Uh, Let's see. So Blue and White kind of got brushed off. Netanyahu is going to try to build a coalition again out of his partners, but one of his partners hates his guts, that being a guy named Lieberman, I think it was. Let me check again here. Yeah, there was some talk about the coalition would have involved an alternating prime ministership, where one coalition partner had the prime minister's office for the first half, and then the second half uh, would have gone to Netanyahu. But again, that kind of fell apart. Uh, Let's see, what's his name? Yeah, there it is. It is Lieberman. Lieberman is a a guy who used to be a partner of uh, Netanyahu, used to be in his coalition. And then at one point in the last elections, Lieberman was up for the position of president. And Netanyahu basically said, hell no, I don't want him in there, I want my own guy. And so Netanyahu sabotaged Lieberman's bid for the presidency, uh, and that basically made him a blood enemy for life. (laughs) He was not happy about that. So he went and started up his own party, which was very conservative, but it was a nationalist, secular conservative rather than religious nationalist conservative. And Lieberman's big problem, along with many secular nationalists in Israel, is the idea of giving uh, exemptions to, I think it's uh, Israeli citizens who are studying to become rabbis. Is that what it is? Something Basically a religious exemption for religious students. Uh, secular nationalists don't like that. And uh, Lieberman's party was at odds with the religious nationalist party that was also in Netanyahu's coalition. And really, it's the breakup in relations between them that is causing Netanyahu problems. If not for that, he could form a majority coalition and return to government. But Lieberman and his people are not having it, and that's forcing Netanyahu to kind of approach blue and white for the coalition, or at least was. So let's see, there's that rivalry there between Lieberman and Netanyahu preventing the formation of a government. That's kind of been in the cards for a while. That's not a new thing. There's been tensions there for years. It's just kind of coming to a head now. There's also a relevant factor here is the corruption investigations into Netanyahu, which we've actually talked about before uh, this past summer, months ago, a long time ago actually. Uh, those investigations are ongoing. Um, As prime minister, he has immunity to prosecution, but if he has to step down, then he's probably going to face a real trial, and at least one of the investigations into him seems to be pretty likely to result, or at least relatively likely to result, in a guilty verdict. So being prime minister isn't just about being the leader of Israel for Netanyahu at this point, it's also about avoiding going to jail, basically. Um... Maybe he doesn't. Maybe the trial finds that he's actually innocent, but uh, there's a chance that it won't, and he's not one to take chances. So he's fighting pretty hard to try to stay in the Prime Minister's office for that reason as well. It's not the only factor, but it's one of the factors. Let's see. So he's trying to form a government now. Basically where it is now is that the talks failed and that Netanyahu was trying to form a government and probably won't be able to. And... um, if that, does, that if his effort does end up failing, that Israel is probably going to have um, new elections again, basically the third elections this year, which is probably approaching a record for them. But either way, the walls kind of seem to be closing in on Netanyahu. You know, between Lieberman on the one hand, the Blue and White coalition on the other, it kind of seems like uh, his star is fading a bit. Because hypothetically, uh, you could have, uh, let's say, a coalition between Blue and White and Netanyahu's party. But for example, one of the demands made by the Blue and White coalition is that they get the Prime Minister's office first. Remember I talked about the alternating setup that they were planning on having. Um, They wanted it first because that would mean Netanyahu would have to step down as Prime Minister and would be subject to prosecution. Uh, So technically... Netanyahu's party would be able to get the prime minister's office back later on, but Netanyahu himself would probably not. So at this point, Israeli politics is not just about electing a new government. Right now, it's also this power game between Netanyahu's rivals, Gantz and Lieberman, to get him out of the prime minister's office one way or the other. Even if that means that Netanyahu's party still has some role in government or even stays in power, a lot of people now are gunning for him and just trying to get him out. You know, the guy has enemies, basically. So the Netanyahu show rolls on, as it has for some time now in Israel. That's kind of the update there.
0: Good, so they won't be getting bored.
1: Oh yeah, definitely not bored. Yeah, Israel's also blowing things up in Syria usually Iranian-related, but that's kind of a separate issue at this point. You know, the Palestine issue and the Syria issue are kind of peripheral in Israeli politics at this juncture. At this point, Netanyahu's corruption allegations, uh, corruption trial investigation, whatever you want to call that, as well as just general national security concerns. It's not necessarily a specific thing, just in general, hawkish national security perspective. Those are sort of the big drivers there in Israel. I think. If you're from Israel and I'm dead wrong, please let me know in chat. (laughs) I want to know if I'm wrong more than anybody, so please do let me know. Or if you're not from Israel and you think I'm wrong, let me know. Feedback appreciated. But especially if you're from Israel. (laughs) Especially if you're from Israel.
0: I know that we have a few regulars from Israel, and time zone-wise, I think this is right around the morning period, so it will be a breakfast stream for some people.
1: Yeah, I can see in the country chart here. Yeah, you got two.
0: Nice. Hello. Please help us.
1: <laughs> oh, and one from Hong Kong? Yeah. Well, you actually got a whole bunch on here tonight.
0: Yeah, we got <clears throat> a couple nice raids. One of them was Jenna Bain. She's a pretty big community figure for starcraft and a bunch of esport titles in general i was on her podcast show recently also cerberus who is a friend of mine who i lifeguarded with back in the day and turns out he has a twitch stream as well then we got to hang out at twitchcon oh nice yeah so it's been a really nice evening for streaming thanks for hanging out everybody and just so you know we're over two hours as well so i know you're quite tired if you want to take a couple more and then rest that's fine by me.
1: Oh, thank you. I'll, I'll see if I can plow on. I want to try to get at least a few more in. Where were, oh, yeah, the Netanyahu update. Yeah, we got that. Uh, let's see. Next question. I am from the UK. My take is Brexit was voted by liberal constituents. Liberal constituents. I'll get back to that. Who wanted to take EU dues to ensure further entitlements? My friend says the Tories tricked lib constituents to vote for Brexit because the Tories want to be isolationist slash fascists away from the continent, which is it. Okay, so in British politics, there's a party called Liberal Democrats. I think that's what it is. And they're sort of like the pseudo-libertarian party over in Britain. So it's a little confusing for Americans because liberal over in the United States basically means leftist. That's sort of what it's associated with. But over in Europe, it's more associated with its original definition, which in the U.S. is called classical liberals. Now, we've covered this before a couple times. So let's see. My take is take is Brexit was voted by liberal constituents who wanted to take EU dues to ensure further entitlement. I guess if this person is American and their friend is British, then maybe he means liberal as in leftist. I guess I would have to ask for clarification on that, because the definition of liberal here matters. <laughs> I could refer to a couple different people, depending on uh, depending on how you want to define that. No, he says he's from the UK. Okay. I'm from the UK. My liberal constituents wanted to take EU dues to ensure further entitlements. Oh, I see. So you're saying okay, I think when you say liberal you mean labor. The Labor Party. So you think the Labor Party wanted to redirect EU funds uh, to social spending. Please correct me if I'm wrong on this. I'm just trying to interpret here. My friend says that the Tories tricked constituents to vote for Brexit because the Tories want to be isolationist. I don't think the Tories want to be isolationist, fascist, away from the continent. I think that there's just a subgroup within the Tories that have always hated the idea that the UK uh, is tied to the European Union or the European Economic Community, as it was called back in the 70s. We talked a little bit about this before. Even when the the UK joined the European Economic Community, there was a huge amount of opposition. Uh, Well, maybe not a huge amount, but there was very visceral opposition from a minority within the conservative party and they never let it go it was always an issue for them Uh, it wasn't an issue for the party leadership per se and most of the people who were in the conservative party but there was always that strong cohort whom just could never get over it it was actually one of the things that brought down thatcher's government if i remember correctly a lot of people were kind of upset with her because she was seen as being too european i think That's what I'm remembering. Let's see. So I don't think it's that they want to be isolationist fascist. Um, Certainly not fascist. I don't think it's a fascist party. I think that they just want more independence. They don't like the idea of uh, British sovereignty being curtailed by being in the European Union, which they don't really see as being sufficiently laissez-faire. That's kind of the hidden side of the Brexit thing, if you can call that hidden. Maybe it's not really hidden per se, but... uh, everybody wants something from Brexit. Uh, People on the right want a path forward through which they can liberalize the economy. And again, liberalism, classically liberal, you know, they want to deregulate the economy and open it up. And getting out of the European Union would be one way to do that because then they could implement regulations that are looser and less extensive than the ones that are being imposed by the European Union. Well, I shouldn't say imposed, but uh, that are a part and parcel of being in the European Union, but then there are people on the left as well that have also voted for Brexit, thinking that they could well thinking that they could break with the European Union, and that that would be an excuse to implement even more stringent regulations, you know regulate the economy even more and have more social spending than they would have otherwise so which is the larger group? I would say probably the conservatives voting for uh, Brexit would probably be the larger group of the two. Certainly I think there were some I would imagine that there would have definitely been some people on the political left in Britain who voted for Brexit because they saw it as an opportunity for reform or as a protest vote or for whatever reason because they thought it was just the best for the country. Certainly those people exist. To the point that Labour the Labour Party kind of is stuck in a difficult position trying to please people in the party who are hardcore remain and want to fight Brexit tooth and nail all the way. And people who are more conservative in the party, who are actually more pro Brexit, both of those groups are actually present in the Labour Party, and reconciling them has proven one of the big challenges uh, facing the Labour Party leadership under Corbyn. So I think, if I had to, if I you know if I had to make a statement here, if I had to assert here, I would say, probably not, probably not. Bre- Bre- I don't think Brexit passed because uh, you know leftists in Britain were tricked uh, into or convinced to vote for Brexit because they thought they would necessary. They thought they would get more, uh, get a chance to spend more. Uh, Brexit, I think, was more about immigration, uh, on the one hand, and sovereignty. I think those were sort of the bigger issues there, as well as just general dissatisfaction British. The British economy has not been great (laughs) over the past 10 years. It's kind of like the US economy in some ways. It's generating more jobs than other developed economies, but a lot of the jobs are like shit gig economy type jobs, so it's not necessarily ideal. Better than nothing, per se, you know, but I guess that's subject to debate too. Would you rather have an economy that has lots of job opportunities but most of them are garbage? Or would you have a, rather have an economy where most of the jobs are good, but you don't have very many of them? That's kind of the dichotomy between Anglo-Saxon, you know, Anglo-American economic management, Anglo-Saxon political economy at this point, if you like, and European continental political economy. Although that's a very general rough description, so don't, don't read too much into that. That's kind of a meandering answer that's a little bit all over the place. I think, I hope, that I kind of sufficiently addressed the question. If not, let me know and I'll be happy to make another attempt at it, although I don't know how much... I don't know how in-depth I can be when I'm this tired. This is a bit of a challenge, but uh, I'll make the effort, if so desired. Let's see, so that's it for questions. I think we're okay on time still, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, if you wanted to wrap it soon, you can. Uh, friendly reminder that you need to stay on the site for a little bit longer so you can finish uploading your piece.
1: A Very good thing you gave that reminder. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I would have remembered.
0: It's pretty late.
1: Yeah, I was going to just go right to bed. Uh, Let's see. What else do we have? What? Pick a region.
0: Pick a region?
1: Pick a region.
0: We did... A little bit of Africa.
1: You're South America
0: is interesting. We could visit that some more, too.
1: South America. Okay, for Africa, the thing is xenophobia. I'm, I'm sure there's other stuff happening, but, but the thing that I remember here is uh, there's sort of this escalating series of attacks on foreigners in South Africa. Um, South Africa's economy is relatively good. In fact, it's probably the best in Africa. Uh, certainly in terms of the diversity of the economy and that attracts a lot of migrants uh, economic immigrants who come to try to build a better life for themselves create businesses blah 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 etc but a lot of people in the poorer areas of south africa resent them because uh, they see them as well you know the usual logic they're stealing jobs uh, they're taking you know they're doing businesses that we could be doing blah 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 that you know the usual that kind of thing and uh The interesting thing is that it's uh, the result of these riots and attacks is that uh, Africans in South Africa are attacking Africans from other parts of Africa. It's not actually whites, you know, middle-class whites in South Africa attacking, you know, uh, African migrants from other parts of Africa. It is actually the poorest uh, part of the population in South Africa is largely black. And they're the ones who seem to be having uh, the biggest problem with these immigrants coming in. And so it's put the South African government in an awkward position, because the South African government, of course, is uh, post-apartheid, very supportive of, you know, African development, African liberation, etc. And now they're kind of having to explain away these riots in which, you know, fellow Africans are being targeted. Pan-Africanism is a real thing, you know, that is sort of a real ideology and perspective in Africa, but it's actual operationalization has uh, suffered a bit. You know Corruption, obviously, is a big problem, but uh, you know also just divergent interests. People in different parts of the continent have different interests, depending on where they are in businesses and whatnot. <clears throat> and so in this case, you know it's workers. Uh, you know the workers in the one country uh, are not really benefiting from having a bunch of workers coming in and as they perceive it, driving down wages. So that's creating tensions. Actually, that could be an interesting thing. You know, instead of doing these updates, I could talk a little bit about African geography and political geography, since that's not something that people are super invested in, I think.
0: Yeah, we could do an episode that's kind of focused on that, <clears throat> just kind of laying the groundwork for what's going on in Africa and what's led to present day. Well, I mean like now. Well, you could, but you're also tired. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well,
1: that's true, but Is it's fresh it? in my mind because I've been looking into it a little more. I've been trying to, well, I shouldn't say studying, more like Wikipedia binging, but I've been reading about uh, the Atlantic slave trade, uh, more specifically mm-hmm. European colonization in West Africa. So I've been getting more the politics of uh, some of the early African kingdoms that were there before, just before the Europeans got there. And so I've gotten well, more if you've of, got the
0: fire, then you can hit it. I won't stop you. I'm just trying to be compassionate to you. Cause you did say it was late when we started. And no, we no,
1: I understand. I appreciate it. I, I got gotcha. you, but I it just kind of struck me that I could maybe dig into that a little bit. And it's not super in depth. It's not like, all right, this is all, you know, the specific rivers, just in general, give the listener or, you know, whomever, uh, a rough idea of the regions of africa some of the geography some of the politics etc just very very general you know All right
0: africa in 10 minutes or less let's go
1: <laughs> okay so gosh where do you start so the sahara desert is easily the biggest geographic region and the people the principal ethnic groups that live there are Taregs and uh berbers and both of those are basically migrant peoples they're uh they mostly travel by camel and horse. Uh, they migrate from place to place. You know They traditionally, historically, have controlled uh, important trade routes, although those trade routes have kind of died out since then, but they've remained pretty dominant there. It's mostly empty. There's some natural resources there, but it's not super important politically, uh, and it's just kind of a backwater in general. It's really more of a barrier than anything that separates North Africa from the rest of Africa. You know, just kind of a giant block between them. Uh, North Africa, obviously, is ethnically Arab. Uh, That was invaded pretty early on during the Islamic invasion. So when you think of North Africa, think of the Middle East, because they're pretty tightly intertwined politically. Well, ethnically and politically. Um, There's kind of a pseudo-exception there for Northwestern, North Africa. A lot of the people there are ethnically more related to the Taregs and Berbers. And so uh they're a little more distinctive. For example, the Arab language that they speak is not intelligible to other Arab speakers in the rest of the Arab world. Also, politically they they're a little bit divergent and ethnically they descend a little more from Europeans. There was a Vandal barbarians that invaded after Rome fell, so they kind of integrated there. So they're a bit distinctive. That's the that's the main takeaway there. So that's North Africa. Uh, Sahara. So between the Sahara Desert and uh, the West African coast, that sort of east-west line running there that's in West Africa, there's a belt of territory called the Sahel. And this is sort of a transition zone between the Sahara Desert and the more fertile forest regions along the coast of West Africa. And the Sahel is sort of semi arid You know, it's a dry It's kind of savanna-like. The main geographic feature in the Sahel is the Niger River, which runs east-west through a good chunk of it. And the Niger River there is where a lot of major African civilizations first sprouted up. So this is one of the major civilizational centers of Africa in the Sahel around the Niger River and in the Niger River Basin. That's an important region historically. Now, the Sahel is also important because there's a number of uh, migrant peoples. Um, I've called them horse peoples before, which is apparently wrong. (laughs) But their culture is built around horses, uh, and they use horses to move uh, from one region to the next, you know, uh, in order to move flocks, you know, uh, well, not flocks per se, but herds, in order to herd animals and that kind of thing. You know, just the typical migratory type of lifestyle. Uh, But unlike the Taregs and Berbers, these groups were much larger because the Sahel was more fertile. And uh, so there's actually a pretty strong horse culture along the Sahel amongst the different ethnicities there. They've spent uh, the past several centuries, if not further, uh, mastering uh, the art of being, uh, you know, horse culture. I know that sounds too... I should figure out the technical name for it. Uh, But when you think of the Sahel, then think of cultures and peoples on horseback, kind of like the Indian, the Native Americans, and the Great Plains. Kind of a rough similarity there. A better comparison would probably be uh, like the Turkish peoples in the Central and the Eurasian Plain, that Central Asian plateau. uh, Well, not plateau, but plains region. You know that all those barbarians that invaded Europe came through uh, historically. You know, sort of that style of culture. Uh, but that said there's also agriculture there along the niger river so a number of states important states were along the niger and the sahel as well so those two cultures kind of lived side by side again i'm pretty new to african history so you know don't read too much into this this is meant to be super basic so just a rough reading here um the atlantic coast has historically not been that is to say, the West African coast has not been important historically too much up until, you know, the past couple hundred years. Uh, but even before the slaves trade started up, which, you know, injected a lot of money uh, in, in, in the economies there, even before that, there had been a number of city-states uh, along what is now the Nigerian coast. So these city-states were major ports and were major trading powers. And so that was another sort of major center of uh, development in Africa. Uh, They were sort of supercharged by the Atlantic slave trade. That was sort of Africa's exposure to the globalization that occurred in the 1500s and 1600s. Obviously, the Europeans sort of expanding using uh, advanced shipping, tech what was then advanced shipping technology, and connecting markets that had traditionally not been connected, creating a new globalization that, uh, what we would now call globalization that hadn't existed before, and that created waves all over the world, social, economic, and political. And in West Africa, that globalization manifested as the slave trade. And obviously, it was very inhuman and brutal and whatnot, but it also resulted in a lot of these city states becoming immensely wealthy because uh, they exported such a huge amount of slaves and uh, got well, an was the, mechanic to, sorry, Go the mechanic
0: of that sorry interrupt here. the mechanic of that was basically. You had different factions and peoples who were in the region, and if you win a battle, you win a war, you get prisoners of war, that's who is being sold into slavery?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that was how it started. That was the tradition. tradition, That was traditional African slavery in the West African region. It was also used as a punishment for crimes. Uh, What happened, though, is that uh, exporting those slaves became so valuable that it changed the how slaves were got. You know, it used to be that you would have wars, like you do. Uh, obviously, there's always people committing crimes, so you always have some slaves around. But once it became, once that economic incentive to sell slaves became so great, because obviously the introduction of European demand made them a lot more valuable, uh, the incentive to go and start a war just to get slaves was sort of introduced. Um, you know, that wasn't necessarily the case before. And uh, so there was a lot more aggression going on. There was, there was this incentive to in, be more belligerent in foreign policy in order to generate that cash revenue. And uh, also there was an incentive to be a lot more uh, intolerant. Intolerance, not the right word. What do I want? Um, to punish people with slavery more. It didn't used to be that they punished people with slavery for as many crimes as they did later on. Because obviously the more people you can punish with slavery, the more slaves you have. And the more slaves you have, the more revenue you have. So the introduction of the European trade introduced a whole new incentive structure that changed how the institution of slavery worked and influenced society and decision-making in West Africa. So that's... I guess that's not even what you asked. I'm sorry. That's (laughs) just a random tangent. Yeah. Yeah. Roughly. Well, you answered what I asked already. Okay, so. that's the key thing. <laughs> but yeah, I just uh, I wanted to highlight that there were city-states along the Nigerian coast there. The rest of the West African coast was kind of undeveloped. There wasn't as much going on there, as far as I know. But there were some trading city-states there in Nigeria, even well before the slave trade started. So that's, a, that's worth mentioning there. So let's see. Um, North Africa, Sahara, Sahel, West African coast... Nigerian coast. So down into the Congo, obviously you have um, the rainforest region there. That's not terribly inhabitable. <clears throat> but there was a kingdom that was set up there called the Congo Kingdom. And that was the kingdom that the Portuguese uh, kind of interacted with, the first Europeans in the region. Um, that was basically all just one kingdom, but it wasn't like really thickly populated, because again, the terrain, the climate, etc. was not very amenable, you know, to settlement even for the indigenous population. But this is kind of the area that you have the uh, pygmy peoples. You know, these are the people that are famously very short and uh, this is kind of their homeland basically. This is where they're originally from. What happened is that uh, other people migrated, other African peoples migrated into the region and came to dominate it. And so while the pygmy peoples are not uncommon in many areas, even in those areas where they're common, they don't really own the land. The land is actually owned by other Africans who are descended from other lineages. So that's the Congo. Um, It's kind of always been a little unstable ever since uh, the Europeans came, because the Portuguese came in and uh, Christianized the king of the Congo kingdom. They converted him to Catholicism, and in exchange, he got a lot of financial support, trade, etc. And uh, You know, the trouble with giving a king a lot of money is that it upsets the political equilibrium between him and his subjects. So in a feudal political system, which is in effect what he had at the time, uh, your nobles control a lot of territory, have a lot of autonomy, and are pretty powerful in their own right. But if a king gets a lot of cash, and this happened in Europe too, once the king gets a lot of cash, that gives him a distinctive advantage, a decisive advantage over his nobles and that gives him the option of centralizing his state and marginalizing noble power. Nobles don't really like that, as you can imagine, especially since it's a de facto norm that they be relatively autonomous. So when the Portuguese came and allied with the Congo Kingdom, a civil war broke out pretty quickly between the nobles and the king. That's about all I know about it. Again, still reading about it. And, you know, Even that is subject to criticism, but that's what I'm remembering. But the point of that is that The Congo, as violent as it is now, that kind of stems from that early... Because that civil war lasted a long time. That lasted on and off into the 1600s. Mind you, the Portuguese got there in like the early 1500s. So that was a very long series of conflicts that kind of spun out of that early disequilibria. On the plus side, Portugal got Luanda, which turned into their Angola colony. So that's pretty cool, I guess. (laughs) Oh! That's the yeah I forgot that's another important thing. So this Congo region, this uh, central West African region, it's uh, south of the Nigeria but north of Namibia. That coastal area there, uh, a lot of it is Congo, most of it is jungle. It's historically pretty unstable, but the most important thing to know about it now is that it's oil rich. So this is basically Petro Africa. This area has a lot of Petro states like uh, Gabon, Angola that I mentioned. Uh, equatorial Guinea, Tome and Principe, um, not so much DR Congo. They barely have any coastline there, but a little bit. Pretty much any country that has territory there has access to oil. It also extends up into southeastern Nigeria, which is why Nigeria has uh, a lot of oil, a lot of oil revenue. So that entire region has a significant set of oil industries. And in turn, European involvement there is very strong. Uh, specifically the French oil company Total, I think it is. I hope I'm getting that right. So this is kind of the area that ties in strongly to something we've talked about before, which is Franca which is basically uh, France's sphere of influence in Africa. Traditionally, it's been West Africa, but because of their oil interests and economic interests, they've also kind of have expanded, uh, if they hadn't already, into that oil-producing region in central West Africa. So that's an area where the French government and French oil industry has a lot of influence, on account of the oil there. So when you think of that area, or see it on a map, think of oil. So let's see, south of that is a desert. (laughs) You might think South Africa, that's a really developed country, Uh, well, relatively developed country. Um, Must be a lot of good land there, not really. Basically the western half of South Africa is very arid except for the coast. The coast is okay. Yeah, that's pretty fertile. Um, but the western part of Africa is largely semi-arid to arid. And Namibia, the country to the northwest of South Africa, is, is just desert. That's almost purely desert. So that whole chunk of area there is not very amenable to settlement. Uh, historically speaking, it didn't really have a lot going on there until the Europeans came and started kind of really building it up. But there is an interesting African group here. Uh, they're called the Khoisan. I have no idea if that's how it's pronounced, uh, but that's how I read it. And the interesting thing about the Khoisan is they're not really related to other groups in Africa. Most groups in Africa are kind of related. You know, the Bantu in particular are like the most populist, dominant ethnic group. Or at least uh, them and, or the various subgroups of the Bantu. But the Khoisan are distinctive. They're genetically distinctive from the Bantu and other major groups. And it kind of makes sense because um, a lot of, it's very difficult to travel through, you know, jungle, especially if you don't have technology. So thousands of, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, uh, very relatively few people migrated south through the Congo jungle or through other routes to get into the far south of Africa. And so the result is that the groups of people in southern, the far south of Africa ended up being very ethnically distinct from the other regions of Africa, which were more integrated. You know, the Sahel region I mentioned was kind of like a big highway. You could travel it pretty easily by horse. So there was a lot of communication and ethnic interchange and ethnic linkages there between all the groups there. And the same you could say for other regions. But the far south was so far away that it really didn't intermingle much. And the geographic separation by the Congo uh, was sufficient to kind of keep them isolated for a very long time, up until the Europeans first contacted them. So when you think of the far southwest of Africa, think of the Khoisan and distinctive ethnicities. That's sort of their area, although it's a lot more European now. The Portuguese came and intermarried with the Khoisan, so uh, the people there are what South Africans call colored people, which are people of mixed descent, or Indians as well. Uh, so let's see, so that's the western part of... So the South Africa, the eastern part of South Africa is where the best land is. Um, or at least where the relatively fertile land is. And uh, that's actually a region that the Zulu are relatively new to. Um, That kind of surprised me, too. Uh, As I said, the Africans in South Africa had been kind of separate, but one of the things that happened over the past couple hundred years is that uh, other African groups that were dominant in other regions started mass-migrating into the region. So the Zulu were among them, and they obviously came to build a big empire there. They came to dominate it. They They did not actually... If I remember correctly, and please correct me on this if I'm wrong, if I remember correctly, the Zulu did not actually precede the Europeans by all that much. It was only like a hundred years or two hundred years before the Europeans got there. So in that sense the Zulu were kind of foreigners to South Africa in a sense too, in the sense that they're invaders. There was a lot of war. (laughs) So let's see, so you can kind of think of the eastern part of South Africa as having distinctive identities too, but also having Uh, The Zulu and other relatively recent migrants, historically speaking, all kind of interacting there, as well as the high degree of economic development and the Afrikaners and all that. The more recent South Africa, all of that is present as well. South Africa is a very distinct part of South Africa. So, you know, it's kind of hard to just generalize it. It is. It's itself. A
0: distinctive part of Africa. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it should sound like a broken record. I'm almost South done. Africa
0: is by far the most South African place in the world.
1: It's almost over. <laughs> almost through. I'll try to just hack my way through the last bit of it here. Um, the Great Lakes region is the what? Two more regions. The Great Lakes region is one of them. Uh, that's the region that's sort of uh, well. If you look at a map, you can see some big lakes in the sort of that central eastern part of Africa. That's the Great Lakes region, and that was one of the last parts of Africa to be explored by Europeans. Uh, In turn, it's also kind of, it's not, there's pretty significant European influence there, but it didn't really hit as heavily as, say, the Congo or West Africa uh, or South Africa, for example. So some of the areas there have more, are more untouched. Uh, It's also the region of Africa that's maybe doing the best economically and politically. As far as political stability and economic development, the Great Lakes region does pretty well. Rwanda is a standout case. Rwanda has recovered pretty strongly from the genocide way back in the 1990s, and since then has uh, developed pretty well. I think they've even got a pretty decent manufacturing sector sector going now. Um, Burundi has not done as well, (laughs) Uh, but Kenya obviously does pretty well for itself. That's a pretty big uh, economic center for East Africa. Uganda does okay, and Tanzania is known more for political stability. So all told, when you think of the Great Lakes region, um, think of stability. Think of success Africa. That's the good Africa. Between that region and South Africa uh, is Mozambique, Zambia, Zimbabwe. Uh, This region I don't know as much about, so I can't really comment as much. But there's been a lot of war there. (laughs) There's been a lot of shit. Uh, That was where there was a civil war in Rhodesia. Uh, Rhodesia was one of the um, holdout colonial states. Um, When the European powers were giving African states their independence, uh, the colonial government in Rhodesia said no, basically. They just unilaterally declared independence in an effort to maintain white rule in in Rhodesia. That led to a long civil war. And eventually a guy named Robert Mugabe came to power after the civil war ended. And he, of course, um, did some things to the economy that were not great, and so now Zimbabwe is kind of known as an economic basket case. Uh, Mozambique had a long civil war after it broke away from Portugal. Uh, Zambia and Malawi are pretty quiet, and they kind of did better. But I'm not really sure what to tell you what to think of when you think of this region, but I generally think of war because that's what I'm familiar with, having studied a little bit of the civil wars in the area. Uh, and then finally the Horn of Africa, which is an interesting contrast. It has some contrasting case studies. On the one hand there's Somalia, which doesn't really have a government and is kind of a case study in anarchy. And there's Eritrea, which is considered the North Korea of Africa. That kind of tells you all you need to know right there. Um, so those don't really suggest good things for the Horn of Africa, but also in the Horn of Africa, Ethiopia, which is a really powerful country. It actually has more than a hundred million people, easily the largest country in Eastern Africa, if one of the largest in the continent, and it has one of the best economies in the region in Africa. Actually, um, its economy has done pretty well. Not great, you know. Nobody does really great other than South Africa, anyway. But as far as African states that are still a developing status, Ethiopia has done pretty well for itself. And its government has been getting better. It's it's been a little up and down. Uh, But since the uh, communists were overthrown in the revolution in the 1980s, uh, the revolutionary government has done okay. And it's been improving a lot lately, because there's a reformer who's come into power who's been making a name for himself. I can't remember his name right now. (laughs) But... Uh, If I were more awake, I probably could. He's been doing pretty well. He's been mediating peace in the region. Uh, He's actually negotiated peace with Eritrea. They were already at peace, but relations were super tense. It was kind of a Cold uh, War-type arrangement. So tensions with Eritrea have improved. Trade ties have improved. He's been doing a lot of good stuff over there in the Horn. If he can keep it up, he could go down as one of Africa's great statesmen. His start is that good, but it's still just a start. So we'll see where he goes in the long run. But uh, good things definitely happening in Ethiopia right now. And then, of course, also in the Horn of Africa is everybody in Chad's favorite country, Djibouti, which has also been doing pretty well for itself. That as well as Ethiopia, they're kind of a one-trick pony economically in the sense that they're kind of a waypoint uh, in the channel there. The Straits of... I can't even remember what the Straits are called there. Uh, but they're an important waypoint there for international trade and shipping and uh, they have managed to stay pretty stable. Also in the Horn of Africa is one of my favorite countries in Africa, Somaliland. It's different from Somalia. It's supposed to be a part of Somalia, but it broke away after the Civil War. Nobody recognizes their independence, which is a problem for them, but de facto they're independent. The Somali UN-appointed government in Somalia uh, doesn't have any authority over them. They say that they do, but they don't really have any actual direct authority that they can exercise. So it's de facto independent. The cool thing about Somaliland that I like is its government institutions. They actually created some unique indigenous uh, uh, institution that represents an an upper house. Uh, In a legislature, you generally have a lower house and an upper house. Um, In Somaliland, they actually designed their upper house to uh, be, uh, the people in their upper house are all tribal leaders. Uh, Tribal conflict is a big problem in a lot of different parts of Africa, uh, and it kind of dominates the politics in some areas, to the detriment of the health of the political culture, since tribal politics kind of eschew policy in favor of ethnic background and in favor of patronage. Uh, So in Somaliland, they just kind of baked that problem into the institution to try to handle it, and it seems to have worked pretty well. So instead of having politics based on tribe, uh, they have an institution that is specifically designed to channel tribal concerns and considerations. It was a pretty, it's a pretty neat innovation. I kind of thought it was interesting. Um, I
0: mean, tribal council has been on Survivor for what, like 20 (laughs) seasons? (laughs) There
1: you go. It worked for them. It can work for Somaliland. But it's just a cool little country. You know, as far as African countries go, they're the only one I know of that's kind of tried an interesting experiment like that and had it actually kind of work. Um, their political system is not super stable. They've had some problems and controversies, but overall, it's uh, it's worked out okay. You know, they had a judicial ruling about a contested election, and everybody honored it. That's a big deal. You know, it's kind of a low bar, but in countries that aren't used to having democratic political cultures, that's an important that's an important milestone. So, in general, you know, check out Somaliland. That's an interesting country, and it's another example of how the Horn of Africa is. A region of contrasts, you know. It's the, it has the best of Africa and the worst of Africa, basically. It's also very distinctive in its own right. The ethnic groups there and the history is very distinctive from the rest of Africa. You know, Ethiopia alone has a very long history. You know, it was never really colonized by Europeans until you know Mussolini, but that didn't last very long. You know, they were largely independent before that, and it's also one of the few Christian kingdoms that uh, survived. It's one of the most ancient Christian kingdoms uh, in Africa, in the world even. So a lot of distinctive, interesting history there as well. That's it.
0: (laughs) Well, well done. You did basically a full episode today. So we're at two hours, 50 minutes, and there was also some troubleshooting before. So hats off to your endurance. I know it's tough thinking of old stuff when you're quite tired, but... I think this was a really good episode, personally. Thanks, everyone. In well, chat you inspire
1: for... me, Nero. You give me energy. Your energy is infectious. Oh, yeah? Very. Also, my notes help. And also, I'm yeah. drinking ice-cold water, so that helps keep me awake. So
0: Crisp, fresh water. Yeah. Hell yeah. Well, this is a really awesome project. I think it's one of the best pieces of content on my channel, and that's... Thanks to you coming on, and thanks to people like FuzzyCord, Moss Neotech, who handle the questions, and all the lovely people in the chat who help us with corrections and pronunciation and all those different things. (laughs) Much appreciated. These are now being uh, ported as podcast episodes. We have a really nice new format, thanks to Cobra Venom, it's called Zencaster.com, and what we do here is we each upload our own audio file. That means that this audio is not compressed through Discord on the broadcasters and we're both basically broadcasting directly to the site and uh, once again the reminder to please leave the page open in your browser until the upload is complete so that this is nice and whole for people to just browse on the podcast and cobra venom doesn't have to do any patchwork stuff yeah thank you very much agent smith for your time see you next time thank you everyone for tuning in this is voice of neuro podcast with the amazing agent smith appreciate your viewership and you're listening tuning in for this and we will see you on the next one